This is hell. And we are continuing our celebration of Listener Appreciation Month here on This is Hell when all our guests throughout the entire month of July are suggested by listeners, listeners like you. We are only one week away. That's about 175 hours from our fourth annual This is Hell 20th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show called This is Art, which is happening next Saturday, July 27th, beginning at 3 p.m. and continuing all day, all night at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon. That's Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, 2251 West Devon. You can find out more about it at carrieslounge.com. It's in the Chicago West Ridge, Little India neighborhood. There's going to be good food, live music, amazing art, and you'll get to see our new but still incomplete studios provided by you via Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you get an exclusive weekly podcast again at patreon.com slash thisishell. Our studios and this show are also brought to you by listeners who have gone to our website at thisishell.com, then clicked on support and selected from our line of This Is Hell gifts that we give you for helping us bring the show to you every week, twice a week. You are what makes us possibly the only truly independent radio show or podcast or whatever this show is now. So all July, we are showing our appreciation for you making us exist. First, by only having your guests on the show this month, and then by throwing you a party. We are still taking suggestions for guests this month. And if we select your guest and actually get them on air, we will send you a secret mystery prize. So send your suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. And again, if we pick your guest, you get a prize. Live in the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. And this week, we're going to try and figure out what the hell is happening with the protests in Hong Kong that continue, including a protest tomorrow, which is expected to attract hundreds of thousands in opposition to the Hong Kong bill that would allow citizens to be extradited to China. Then we'll go back to the Portuguese Revolution, the Carnation Revolution of 1974 and 1975, to find out what those who today are clamoring for an uprising can learn from the last rebellion to question who has control over the means of production. Next, we'll go deep on the fight between advocates for public land and those who want to privatize them so they can be sold off, and have their resources exploited. And our last guest this week will introduce you to a lot of terms and concepts to you, including fugitivity and why blackness is trouble, is lawlessness, which makes sense when you realize how unjust the law is that's enforced and imposed upon black lives. As always, contributor Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth which I'll tell you about in a moment. And I'll explain exactly why you should definitely, definitely join us at next week's party, next Saturday's party. And the reason is going to surprise you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. And this week in hell, five years ago, Taiwan experienced the Sunflower Movement, an uprising that attracted hundreds of thousands onto the streets in an attempt to de- rail a trade deal with China that was being supported by the ruling KMT party, the ruling and very Beijing-friendly political party that was in power. Now, five years later, that same pro-Beijing party is facing protests by hundreds of thousands in 
Hong Kong, as Hong Kongers are upset over a new bill that would allow Hong Kong to extradite citizens to Chinese courts. We'll try to figure out everything that's happening in Taiwan since the Sunflower Movement and everything that's happening now in Hong Kong's anti-extradition movement when we have the return of journalist Brian Hugh, a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. You can find out more about New Bloom at newbloommag.net. Brian was a Democracy and Human Rights Service Fellow at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy from 2017 to 2018. The last time Brian was on our show was right before our huge hard drive crash. So I'm pretty sure we were talking about the Sunflower Movement, but that's... Really not positive. After we try to wrap our heads around what's happening in Hong Kong and Taiwan, we'll get in the Wayback Machine and go 45 years into the past to learn the real history, the people's history of the Portuguese Revolution of 1974 and 1975. Yeah, I know. I didn't know anything about the Portuguese Revolution of 1974 and 1975 that toppled the fascist dictatorship either. And seeing as how today's Portuguese government is not all that radical, I figured... Not much happened. In reality, plenty did. And the revolution that took power drastically changed the way that the Portuguese people engage with democracy through thought about politics and can reconsidered class and nearly everything else in building what to many today would seem like a utopian state, although a very short-lived utopian state. We'll discover what revolutionaries today, considering alternative ways of living, can learn from the Portuguese Revolution when we speak with labor historian Raquel Varela. She is author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. Raquel is a professor at New University of Lisbon and senior visiting professor at the Fluminense Federal University. Raquel is also president of the International Association of Strikes and Social Conflicts and co-editor of their journal. Find out more about Raquel at raquelcarderavarela.wordpress.com. It's at our site. After our trips to Taiwan and Hong Kong today and then to Portugal's past, we return to the present to consider public versus private land in the United States. The vast majority of Americans love the national parks and forests, the public lands that have been set aside for us, all to enjoy, to contemplate, to allow us to go back, to get back in touch with nature, which is needed more than ever considering our precarious times that have actually caused something called nature deficit disorder. Despite that adoration for the land that is shared by us all, private interests, fossil fuel companies, and those who would sell off the land to private interests, cutting us off from what was previously all ours, are again making headway with their plan to take what is ours and make it theirs to do with what they want. We'll take a deep look into the public v private land debate when we discuss the topic with political science and environmental studies scholar Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer. Following our discussion on Hong Kong's uprising, Portugal's revolution, and the debate over public lands, our final guest on this week's show will teach us the goon rules, the rules that guide life for many within the black community. When you live in a system that is by design unjust for you while doing while doling out justice for those who are privileged with supremacy, obeying that law would be furthering that injustice. This moral quandary leads many, like this week's final guest, to embrace fugitivity, a life outside the law, and 
and undercommons of resilience and survival that are necessary when you are thrust into an unjust world that has criminalized you the moment you leave the womb. We'll get a grasp of what fugitivity is when we hear from Marquise Bay, author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. In May, Northwestern University announced that it had brought Marquise on board as an assistant professor in Northwestern's announcement of Marquise hiring. They state that he will be offering courses in black political and social life as well as black vernacular as a theoretical praxis. You can follow Marquise on Twitter at Marquise D. Bay, that's B-E-Y. Then we'll close this week's four hours of live hell with a moment of truth. This week, Jeff Dorchin tests our ornithological knowledge, and I'm about to tell you why. As your doctor and analyst, I strongly advise you to attend next Saturday's fourth annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is art. After a very long and deep consideration, I've decided... A party is exactly what you need. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Produce, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, do you ever hear that thing that um, white people smell like wet dogs? Yes, I have. Is that when we're wet or just when, like, all the time? I just think that's an all-the-time thing. Oh, because my kid smells like a wet dog when he's wet. Is he white? Yeah. Oh, there you I, go. This is, that's how I found out. <laughs> This week's live four-hour This Is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM, streaming live right now at thisishell.com. Podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. We are rebroadcasting an abbreviated version from the South Side's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. And on Instagram at thisishell. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and I believe Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Chuck's hangover cure. So this week, Chuck will tell you his newest personal surefire hangover cure. I've discovered a new hangover cure, and it works brilliantly. First, really screw up the plumbing in your shower. So when the shower is running, hot water comes out of the shower head while the spigot to the bathtub is spraying cold water. You can do this by regularly filling a watering can by hanging it from the spigot of the bathtub. Kind of screws up the spigot in a weird way, I guess. The weight apparently screws up the amount of cold water that will be delivered to the shower head and instead it detours it with some spraying out of the tub spigot. Now that your shower is nearly broken and incredibly inefficient at getting the water to the correct temperature, lay down on your back in the tub with the hot shower water spraying on your upset stomach as you put your head under the cold water tub spigot. The hot water calms your belly while the cold waters sober up your head. Alex? I believe that makes this week's hangover uh, cure. That makes this week's hangover cure. Chuck's latest cure to beat his hangover involving... A faulty bathroom? You're making yes. making uh, lemons out of lemonade there. <laughs> I am. Wait. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Next Saturday, This is Hell will be celebrating our fourth 20th anniversary with our annual listener appreciation party and art show called This Is Art, a commission-free gallery opening with all proceeds from art that is sold going directly to the artists themselves. Here on This Is Hell, July is Listener Appreciation Month, so all our guests featured on air 
have been suggested by listeners and will be next week as well. The same goes for the artists displaying their work next weekend. Every artist in This Is Art was suggested by a listener. And sometimes the listener that suggested them is the artist themselves. Every year we throw this party to show our appreciation for you. After all, the airwaves are owned by you, the public, which includes me. But this isn't my show. Being that we are being broadcast on your air, this is your show, and that's never been more true than it is now with so many of you subscribing to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which each week features a brand new monologue by me as well as an interview unavailable online anywhere else, pulled from our vast archives, which date way back to 1996. Currently, I think our online archive only goes back to 2015, but with our Patreon patrons' help, we're now in the process of actually paying a programmer to help us get our entire 23-year archive online and available free for everyone. The more people subscribe on Patreon, the faster we can get that back catalog of This Is Hell up and running and searchable and sortable for your listening pleasure. So that's why we have the party. We want to thank you by putting one day aside every year to offer you a day and night of live music, an art opening, good food, a raffle. And this year's prizes include gift certificates to the Hopleaf and Big Jones, a subscription to Jacobin, passes to see me appear live on stage during a recording, I guess, of the Michael Brooks show, which happens at Lincoln Hall on Saturday, August 24th, the 2020 Dave Buchan calendar. This is Hell merchandise, including one-of-a-kind swag, and a whole lot more, including a book that we featured on the show last week, Simon Pirani's book, Burning Up, about how despite the fact that we are experiencing climate change, our fossil fuel consumption still grows. We do all this to thank you for listening to This Is How. We want to make certain you understand how important you are to the show, that you are the show. You suggest the guests we have on air. You suggest the art we'll be displaying next week. You guide everything about This Is Hell, pointing us in numerous directions of inquiry that make the show what it is. And to be honest, I don't know what This Is Hell is other than a collection of conversations with people discussing what really matters but nobody else is actually considering, let alone talking about. To underscore how important your contributions have been to This Is Hell, we wanted to do something for you. We wanted to give something back to you. And what do you give to someone who has done so much for you? I figured something fun. So you throw them a party. Besides, with so much depression today, as we've been chronicling on the show over the last few years, so much unhappiness in our precarious world of neoliberalism that turns us into easily disposable goods who lack the basic protections offering us the kind of dignity and respect any human deserves. What gift, what better gift can there be than fun? I know what can be better. Fun with a lot of people who you're meeting for the very first time, but who you have this is hell in common. And if you have the show in common with someone else, I'm betting you have a lot more in common than just this stupid radio show and podcast. Not only does neoliberalism make us depressed, it and its gig economy make us lonely, even overcome by a deep feeling of loneliness in a society that rejects anything collective or suggesting community and blasphemously, egotistically, arrogantly deifies the individual overall. I've mentioned my battles with depression on the show before and my realization that depression isn't my fault or your fault, but due to the fact that we live in a depressing world dominated by a depressing system of domination and oppression that seem made to actually keep us depressed, to keep us from experiencing the joy of revolution, of hope, of change. I've also experienced 
deep loneliness. I have a lot of very supportive friends and a big family of wonderful people who would do anything for me if I asked. Or at least I hope they would. Okay, I know my friends would. Not too sure about my family. I also have an incredible partner who fills my life with love. I have a very large network of human beings whom I engage with. Hell, 50 to 60 people come to mind in my girlie's winter party at our home every year, so you might not think or guess that I suffer loneliness, but I do. It's not as bad as it was in the past, but I still do suffer loneliness. In the not-so-far-off past, four years ago, we threw the first 20th anniversary party to celebrate that we were moving in upstairs above Carrie's Lounge. We had teased it for months as a big surprise that would have a huge impact on the show, and it has. Not only are we now able to provide you with more and more This Is Hell throughout the year, including our Patreon podcasts and pre-recording live shows when I'm out of town on weekends so we don't have to play so many best-of and rerun shows, but I'm not as lonely and depressed, and I'm certain that has been noticeable in my demeanor on air, or at least for me it has. See, I used to work alone, in my office, at my home, and I didn't ever have to leave except to come up here to WNUR to do the radio show on Saturday mornings. And the show took up so much of my time, I didn't have time to do anything but the show anyway. On top of that, the only time my friends had free was weekends, which is when I wasn't able to do anything because I was doing the show. On Friday nights, I was either still busy prepping for the next day's This Is Hell or relaxing from a hard week's work. Then Saturday night, I'm usually wiped out from doing four straight hours of talk radio without any interruption whatsoever. So for the past 23 years, my weekends and my social and family life have been shot dead, making me pretty lonely. Before moving into the space above Carrie's, I wouldn't see or talk to anybody except Alex and my girly for weeks, months at a time. Oh, and my cats. I talk a lot to the cats. I spent far too much time talking to cats. I had full-blown conversations with the cats that were... A major distraction for me actually getting any real work done. My cats convinced me that all my paranoias were true. They knew I was vulnerable, alone, in my home, with them in control. I was on their turf, and they insisted that if the phone ever rang, it must be bad news. All my bill collectors and their agencies had my home number, and it would ring off the hook. Each time, sending a chill down my spine, and then right back up into my heart as pressure filled my chest with an anxiety that burns. I would never pick up the phone. Even if it was friends or people who worked on the show, the fears of finally having my mounting debt catch up to me made it so answering any call was rife with a worry that spiraled me down into a near catatonic state, unable to focus on anything but the futility of what we have defined as life in the United States. That changed when I moved my office to above the bar. Suddenly I had the pleasure of seeing other people every day not only on the street as I walk by neighbors and share hellos or in passing at the corner stores, but actually seeing people sitting down and talking to them every day. Sure, some were listeners of the show, and some became listeners because they met me at Carrie's, but mostly they had nothing to do with the show, didn't know anything about it, and when they asked about the show, usually just to be nice, you could tell whatever little interest they may have had for the show had disappeared. And even though I still work up in my office above Carrie's, mostly alone, I don't feel lonely in my depression that was getting worse and worse, beginning to cascade into a torrent of unhappiness that in the past had led me to the edge of the abyss. Abyss, it, it subsided. It waned. It didn't go away because capitalism. But it was, to some extent, muted by the sheer happiness of camaraderie of talking to others, even people who you share nothing in common, people who seconds earlier you were unaware existed, sharing ideas and thoughts and jokes and 
stupid ass puns, conversations on everything, politics, music, sports, literature, art, business, everything, anything, learning about other lines of work that are so distant from your own, the likelihood of you ever meeting anyone from that field is negligible. But here in a bar where you share the lowest common denominator, common denominators of alcohol and not wanting to consume alcohol at home because it can be real lonely and depressing, you never know who you will meet next. That's what we want to give you to show our thanks this year and every year at our annual anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. The chance to break that depression and loneliness that is imposed upon us by a political economic system that has failed and continues to fail all of us. A chance to be happy, a chance to have fun, a chance to tell capitalism, F you, I can still be happy no matter what you do to me. A chance to see old friends and to make new ones. A chance to share time with people who you don't know yet, but who you share our show in common. We hope to give you the rare opportunity to say with a big smile, filled with happiness, this is hell. So set a reminder, put it in your calendar, put it a post in, on your forehead, post it on your forehead, whatever you have to do. Make certain to join us next Saturday, July 27th, beginning at 3 p.m. and going all day and all night. It's the fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show. This is art happening at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge, little Indian neighborhood at 2251 West Devon. This week's question from hell is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat? on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures. What's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? All replies are going to be read during the third hour of this week's show. And the winner will get one of the new pieces of merchandise that we are going to be offering at the party, and that is the This Is Hell trucker cap. Again, the question from Hell is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell we're going to try and figure out what the hell is happening with the protests in Hong Kong that continue, including a protest tomorrow that is expected to attract hundreds of thousands. Then we'll go back to the Portuguese Revolution of 1974 and 1975 to find out what can be learned from the last rebellion to question who has control over the means of production. Next, we'll dig deep into the fight between advocates for public land and those who want to exploit that land and sell it off. And our last guest this week will discuss fugitivity and why blackness is trouble, is lawlessness, which makes sense when you realize how unjust the law is that is a force enforced upon black lives. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin tests our ornithological knowledge and we'll have rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing at Patreon, patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll keep reminding you about the party. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, others for supporting the show at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire, so yes. This is hell. The pro-Beijing government of Hong Kong wants to give China the right to extradite Hong Kongers to China's justice system. As you can imagine, that's not going over well with the people of Hong Kong. Here to help us understand the Hong Kong protests, which will continue on mass tomorrow, journalist Brian Hugh is a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Brian was a Democracy and Human Rights Service Fellow at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy from 2017 to 2018. You can find out more about New Bloom magazine at newbloom.net, and you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh. The last time Brian was on our show, he was on to talk about the Sunflower Movement, which was raging at the time, approximately five years ago. As July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, all this month's guests were suggested by you. Listener Matt on Twitter at Asia Art Tours suggested Brian saying we should have him on to discuss the role of billionaires in Taiwan. Sorry, Matt, we're talking Hong Kong protests, but you still get the secret mystery prize we're giving to every listener who's suggested guest made it on air this month. Hey, let's make Matt happy right at the beginning here. What is why is that such a significant uh, situation within uh, Taiwan? What is the role of the billionaires in Taiwan? Um, well, they control the media, as I think uh, is also true in, in many other locations. And so that's a major effect on the uh, elections currently. Um, and it's also an issue, I think, in uh, Hong Kong, too, that there are these media outlets, uh, which basically have government, are, are just uh, putting out government propaganda. It's oftentimes owned by oligarchs for whom it's in the best interest for Hong Kong to just acquiesce to Chinese rule. So it, if that's the case, if they control the media, if the media is uh, government-run media, essentially, or government propaganda media, how is the coverage, what is the coverage like of the protests in Hong Kong? Hmm, it depends. I think um, in Hong Kong, you have the issue of a very polarized media environment in which the pro-Beijing newspapers and so forth will just be putting out the government line, and the kind of uh, pro-democracy newspapers will be more critical. However, that is increasingly hard because of the fact that uh, the government can restrict media. Um, a lot of times people are turning to newer online media outlets, and uh, the government sometimes doesn't want to have uh, to allow newer online media outlets access to, for example, press conferences, conferences and that kind of thing. Um, in general, also media freedoms are deteriorating because of the fact that, uh, for example, in the recent set of protests, journalists are being targeted quite deliberately by police, um, even if it is very apparent that they are journalists, that they're wearing these uh, bright yellow vests that say they are press or helmets with stickers attached to them that say press, um, those will be fired at, or maybe they'll be particularly tar- targeted by police and fired at directly and, uh, with uh, you know, pallet bags and rubber bullets and that kind of thing. How well has that violence worked in silencing reporters or getting them to not be able to cover the story of the Hong Kong protests? It's one of those things that's actually kind of puzzling to me. Um, sometimes you do see this, I think, whether in Hong Kong, Taiwan, or other parts of the world, in which the police will view the media as enemy because uh, the, the fact is the media will cover their violent acts and give them negative press in that way. And the response is then to target media and attack them, which uh, I think uh, makes the media even less happy. So last week um, on Sunday, there was a demonstration by media uh, reporters. Um, they held a silent march in which they were critical of the government for targeting, or of the police actions against reporters um, in many cases in the past few weeks. And so when you are the media, uh, ostensibly you're not supposed to be taking a side and so forth, but I think that the, the police have oftentimes put journalists into becoming more sympathetic to the protest. Um, though I think many journalists were to begin with because of the fact that media freedoms in Hong Kong are under threat also from the government. So how much dis- disinformation is there about the protests? How has the Hong Kong news media possibly misinformed people on the uh, protests? Is there a certain government narrative that they're trying to push? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's quite visible. Uh, for example, earlier today there was a demonstration by uh, by protesters in defense of the police. These are people that are opposed to the demonstrators uh, against this uh, extradition bill that the government wants to, uh, pro- to pass. And so they claim that it's the students and the young people and the other protesters that are being violent and the police are only doing their job and so forth. 
Um, so the claim that is that the, the, the demonstrators, uh, for example, carried out actions of occupying streets or attempting to occupy the Hong Kong Legislative Council, that they're actually the violent ones, that the police are the ones that are peaceful and national and so forth. And I think that some people actually do genuinely believe this because of the kind of media reporting they are seeing, um, that they actually do think that uh, it's the protesters that are the violent ones. The police are just maintaining law and order. Um, and I think that is not the case, that the police have gone after uh, young demonstrators, uh, people that were just sometimes bystanders in the area, um, attack them and beat them bloody. And, and uh, they are the ones with the legitimate right to violence in society. And so they're the ones that are not going to be facing legal precautions for this. So I want to get back to the last time we were talking, just to give uh, some people some of the context of what we were talking about back then. And that's when we were talking about the Sunflower Movement, which protested the passing, this is back in 2014, the passing of the Cross-Strait Services Trade Agreement by the ruling party, the KMT, the Kuomintang. Uh, and this is a very unpopular policy, and hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets. Now we see the KMT, the Kuomintang, they were the ones who were in power when the idea of this uh, uh, extradition law, this new extradition bill, came up. People from that party in Hong Kong also came up with this idea that has led to tons of protests. Why is KMT's popularity so resilient in Taiwan and Hong Kong while the KMT has proposed such unpopular legislation as the trade deal and now with the extradition bill? Why are their policy implementations so unpopular, yet they stay in power? I realize that they're not currently in power in Taiwan, or in, uh, Taiwan but they were for a very long time. So what explains their resilience? What ex- why are they so seemingly popular despite these unpopular policies? I think it's actually one of the very interesting things that people sometimes forget about their past actions. Uh, the KMT in Taiwan was the former authoritarian party. They were uh, they ruled for decades. Is once the longest martial law period in history uh, that they declared, um, and they carried out uh, acts of political persecution and what was known as the White Terror. However, the memory of that actually does fade. And even just the fact that uh, five years ago they were attempting to passing this, uh, they were attempting to pass this free trade agreement which would threaten many of Taiwan's democratic freedoms uh, because then Chinese companies would have a say in, for example, the media and, and so forth. Um, people actually forget about that. Sometimes the memory of voters is very short. And so people start to think, well, maybe the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, which is currently in power, which emerged from the Taiwanese democracy movement in, in the 1980s, um, people think, okay, well, maybe it's time to give the other side a chance, even if that was the former authoritarian party. And so that is actually kind of a scary thing. Uh, people will sometimes vote for an incredibly... Uh, just to put into someone that fundamentally will undermine democracy, will sign away your freedoms um, and vote for big business. Um, that's a scary thing. Um, in Hong Kong, I think the situation is a little different in which you don't actually have uh, the ability for the Hong Kong people to choose the, the political leader of, of Hong Kong. Um, voting is conducted by a 1,200-member uh, small kind of you know, select committee, selection committee. Um, and so that is also just one of the demands which has been coming up in the last few years, the demand to realize full universal general rights suffrage. Um, but now it's the question of these, these basic freedoms are under assault. Um, I mean, there's a kind of a, a, a relation between Taiwan and Hong Kong in, one watch, in which one is sort of the mere reflection of the other. And so both sides oftentimes are, are watching each other. So uh, the KMT, they are, and you can... Uh, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but uh, the KMT is pro unification with China. How popular is the idea of unification with China, either in Taiwan or in Hong Kong? Hmm. Um, I think if you look at the overall trends, you can see that it is on decline. This notion of uh, unifying with China, the popularity of that notion is declining. Uh, you see the rise of Taiwanese identity over time. 
Um, at the same time, there are people that will just for some reason vote KMT, and it's actually just one of the very interesting things is that people will vote for a party that is pro-unification, despite the fact that I think um, opposition towards direct unification in China is on the increase in Taiwan over time. And I think people don't think that the party will just actually manage to unify Taiwan and China, uh, that they have, sometimes they are taken in, for example, by the discourse of the party, that this is a long-term goal and that they won't push for unification now, but maybe down the line eventually. Um, for example, Hong Kong has actually been uh, one of the, the things that's gone the, caused the KMT to reverse course to say that we don't actually want to have one country, two systems, that we have always opposed the implementation of the system in Taiwan, but that is not the case. The KMT actually had to rapidly backpedal. Um, you know, it's, almost, it's almost like insisting this almost post-truth narrative that you have never opposed, uh, never pushed for this, when in fact you've always been the one pushing for that. Um, and I think that some voters will be taking in on that. In terms of Hong Kong, I think the broader issue is what is the future of Hong Kong? Um, the Chinese Communist Party does not look like it's going to collapse anytime soon, though there's resistance in parts of China and so forth. Um, but uh, in the lack of, of any kind of concrete solutions, it, it's not actually very clear then what you should do. Um, the notion of Hong Kong independence, for example, is actually a fairly new idea uh, that began to be discussed in Hong Kong after the Umbrella Movement. Um, even during the Umbrella Movement, which is in 2014, the previous movement uh, that calls for the realization of universal suffrage in Hong Kong, um, this, this is a new idea. Whereas in Taiwan, I think this idea has been discussed much further. Um, Hong Kong has had to think about a lot of these issues regarding identity, your relation to China, and so forth, uh, much more so after the 1997 handover of Hong Kong from British colonial control to Chinese control. And I think Taiwan, these ideas have been discussed for a very long time regarding independence, unification, and so forth. And so it is, it is, it is actually interesting just uh, watching both sides in terms of uh, where you can compare and contrast the two different histories and the emergence of these ideas about independence or uh, separatism or things like that. You write that we might note the fact that the Sunflower Movement took place only two years into Xi Jinping's uh, term as president of China. Events such as the arrest of youth activists in Hong Kong, they're being blocked from running for office or disqualified from office, or the detention of over one million Uyghurs in Xinjiang for their religion had not yet taken place. In your estimation, is China changing? Is Xi acting in a more authoritarian manner that he had in the past? Um, I think so, and that is actually the very frightening thing. So see, uh, through a series of political maneuvers in the past uh, years, he has managed to overturn the term limits that a Chinese president can serve, um, that there's no longer a two-term limit on uh, how, you know, how, how long he can be president. And so C does seem to be making moves towards lifetime rule. Um, he has not managed to get to that point yet, but uh, he, now he has the option if he's able to further consolidate his power in order to do so. And it seems like he would want lifetime rule because of the fact that he's removed potential successors, uh, he's imprisoned many enemies. And so if he actually ever were to ever step down, whoever comes next probably would take retribution against him or try to ensure that he doesn't become a threat to their power. And so it's almost like he can't step down. Um, at the same time, one of the, the easiest ways to manage to secure that lifetime rule is to create a, a crisis in China. Um, in which that will justify your power grab. So it's a manufacturing emergency, a suspension of the normal norms and so forth. And so it's a question of what that would be. Um, it could potentially be, for example, just claiming that Xinjiang is dangerous and that's, so that's why you need to imprison uh, one million Uyghurs or more. Some people even claim two million now, um, mostly Uyghur groups, uh, for their religion. Or you could, for example, attack Taiwan, um, which would actually result in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths of Chinese young people. Um, but then that, that is one way to justify a power grab as well. Or to point to Hong Kong, 
claiming that foreign powers are interfering in Hong Kong and that this is a threat within China. And so uh, that's also another another way to justify a, a lifetime rule. And so there's there's still um, not any room for political dissent in China. And the, in the, before C, it actually looked like things were getting better, that there's more space for activist groups or civil society organizations and so forth to maneuver. But that space has become increasingly small. But the KMT, many people view them as kind of a proxy for China, and the DPP, many people view them as kind of a proxy for the United States. That's the opposition, one of the opposition parties, the DPP, the one that is in, uh, was voted into office in Taiwan. So how true is it that foreign powers are interfering in what is happening in Hong Kong, whether it's China or the United States? Um, it's actually one of the interesting things that I think uh, the Chinese government can never accept the existence of domestic dissent. Uh, for example, you have these uh, labor demonstrations in Shenzhen um, involving youth uh, activist uh, students working together with workers. And the government claims, the Chinese government claims that this is Western interference that is coming through neighboring Hong Kong. And then you have these protests in Hong Kong, which then the Chinese government claims is, is foreign interference. And then you look at Taiwan, and you also claim that this is America behind it. Um, that is that is just uh, being unable to accept why people would protest against uh, Chinese authoritarianism. At the same time, I think it is also true that uh, in terms of the international condemnations of Chinese actions or the fact that Taiwan uh, receives all these military arms that are bought from America, America does pop up Taiwan as a proxy uh, in its contestation with China. It's a way to, uh, it's a client state of America. And that is also the case with other countries in the region, such as Japan and the Philippines and so forth. But that doesn't mean that uh, this, that there's that this uh, resistance to China is only because of the U.S. It is because people uh, want the right to self-determination. And so in Taiwan, there is, I think, increased the discussion uh, and awareness of the fact that America also treats Taiwan as a geopolitical pawn um, in in trying to just uh, stick it to China. And that is very visible in the Trump administration, which is all this back and forth and so forth, in which it doesn't look like there is more support for uh, Taiwan, but at the same time, Trump suggests that potentially Taiwan could be used as a bargaining chip in a trade deal with China and things like that. Um, so that is the danger. Um, and so there's, there's some element of the truth that um, Taiwan, for example, is supported by the U.S. However, it doesn't mean that the struggle against China is reducible only to uh, the shadow of the U.S. trying to just uh, manipulate color revolutions or, or to foment color revolutions or things like that. When it comes to Xi acting in an authoritarian way, uh, one thing that he has not done yet is the People's Liberation Army that is based in Hong Kong has not have they have not left their barracks yet. They have not done anything to try to quash these protests. What is the likelihood you think that Xi will eventually summon the People's Liberation Army to smash the protests? That is a very scary thing because there doesn't seem to be any solution to the current set of protests currently. Um, the government claims that the extradition bill, which is being protested. Has not, it has, that is suspended and that it will die a national death uh, without being passed into law. But for some reason, they are refusing to fully withdraw the bill. Another one of the demands of the protesters is that the chief executive of Hong Kong, the, uh, the government's highest government leader in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, that she stepped down, take responsibility for uh, this political crisis. And she has not stepped down, and she has not made any moves to step down. Uh, there's a report recently uh, that Lam has actually offered to resign, but her authorities in Beijing, the people that she answers to in Beijing, do not wish for her to resign because there would be no one else willing to take that job currently. Um, and so it doesn't seem like there's a, a resolution currently. It does look like the, the Chinese government hopes that eventually the protest will fizzle out with time, that if it is prolonged long enough and, and uh, just drags it on, eventually burnout will set in and the movement will dissolve. Um, the going claim is then that the uh, major general of who is responsible for the People Liberation Army barracks in Hong Kong 
has stated that he will not be taking action, that they will not be mobilizing to quell protests. And so far, it doesn't seem like they will, but you cannot say uh, because of the fact that uh, if China doesn't back down and the protesters don't back down, one way, one, one potential action of theirs is to just escalate. And uh, if the Hong Kong riot police cannot, are not sufficient in eventually uh, putting down protests, then the next step would be to go to the People's Liberation Army, uh, declaring, for example, martial law in Hong Kong. Uh, there was a report recently that the government was con- considering imposing a curfew, and the government later denied that this is true. But then it, it is just that thing, the situation has a point in which uh, it's hard to see any way out. And so if China really doesn't come in with force, that would be probably the next step. And there are some beliefs in past years that the, the government is already uh, preparing the legal justifications for this to happen. Uh, for example, if you rent, if the Hong Kong government rents land to the Chinese government, then Chinese law applies on that piece of land. And that's already the case in one rail terminal in Hong Kong. So the government could potentially just claim legally that, oh, we're renting this land on which a protest happens to be taking place to the Chinese government. And so then the People's Liberation Army can come in. Um, but either way, it just it, it's a possibility. I think it's more real than ever. It's more real, possibly, than five years ago during the umbrella movement. You write how nobody expected the Sunflower Movement protests and nobody expected them to go from a few hundred students to... Did we just lose Brian? Yes, we did. All right. We'll get Brian back on the line. You are listening to This Is Hell. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter, at thisishellradio. Follow us on Instagram, thisishell. That's all it is, just This Is Hell for Instagram. Join us next week, next Saturday, July 27th, for our fourth annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. We look forward to this every year, hanging out with you, getting to meet more and more of our listeners each and every year. People travel from all over the country to come into town for this, so we're always looking forward to getting to meet more new listeners. And every so often we have uh, past guests surprise us by joining us during the party so that's next saturday july 27th our fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show that is called this is art uh brian you write how nobody expected the sunflower movement protests and nobody expected them to go from a few hundred students to two weeks later a half million protesting did the kmt in hong kong also not expect the protests over the extradition legislation because i'm trying to figure out why they, you know, if they keep getting surprised by these protests, why they keep getting surprised? Does it reveal something about the KMT? I mean, it's the Hong Kong government. Uh, the KMT is only in uh, Taiwan. That's the uh, only right, political party in Taiwan. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, the uh, I don't think they expected this happen because of the belief that uh, people were burned out and tired after the umbrella movement, that, the, that you would not see uh, social movements, again, occurring on such a scale in Hong Kong, that this maybe was a one-time event or the last sort of gasp of resistance from the Hong Kong people. And that, that was not the case. Uh, these protests are larger than any protests in the history of Hong Kong. At their peak, it was 2 million people in the streets, which is around 30% of the population in Hong Kong. Um, some even believe that this is the largest proportion of protesters to the general public in modern history. And so this actually represents that the, the movement has gotten larger in the meantime. Um, the Umbrella Movement in 2014 was only maybe 100,000 people, uh, more than that, in the tens of thousands. Um, and by the end, it was only like 12 people in the streets. Um, and so things have, have uh, once again become that point, and things have escalated a great deal. I think that there's always this belief that things are done and, and so forth, and this uh, kind of hopelessness sets in. But then when people are feeling hopeless, uh, then that is also the, the, the motivator for action. When you feel you're not, you have nothing to lose, then many people will suddenly be willing to take uh, risks and, and go out and protest. And I think that's very visible. 
Hong Kong's anti-extradition bill protests began in March. They were in reaction to a bill, the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Amendment Bill, first proposed by Hong Kong Secretary for Security John Lee, that would challenge the one country, two systems process they have in Hong Kong since it reverted to Chinese sovereignty, leaving the British Empire behind in 1997. The law would give Chinese law enforcement jurisdiction in Hong Kong. First, why would Secretary, uh, Secretary for Security John Lee propose such legislation that on its face would seem to be very unpopular. Is it not as unpopular as we think it is? It's actually very puzzling, uh, because I think that the government did miscalculate here. Um, And it also actually has a Taiwan connection, which is sometimes not discussed. Uh, What happens is that Hong Kong has extradition treaties with 20 uh, different countries and so forth, that one of them in which it does not is Hong Kong, or uh, sorry, is Taiwan. And there's a case in which a Hong Kong student and his girlfriend were vacationing in Taiwan, and he murdered his girlfriend. Uh, he believed that she was cheating on him. And then uh, after he returned to Hong Kong, there was actually no way to prosecute him because of the fact that uh, Taiwan lacks an extradition treaty with Hong Kong. And so the claim was that you need to pass this, this uh, extradition uh, law in order to avoid this legal loophole. But the law that was proposed would have also allowed Hong Kong residents to be deported to China to face charges. And then the fear is that uh, political dissidents in Hong Kong would then possibly be sent to China to be imprisoned and so forth. I mean, this had already been happening uh, under the radar with uh, secret detentions. Uh, there was a case of the Causeway Bay booksellers who published books critical of Chinese President Xi Jinping. Um, they were kidnapped from within Hong Kong and reappeared in China to face charges, um, but that was occurring secretly. And so this law would allow for this to occur publicly on the surface, um, no pretenses about it. And that started to provoke fears. I think the government actually just thought that the public would, in fact, see this as closing a legal loophole, that this would be justified and so forth. They did not expect it to provoke some response, uh, much less a response on this scale. I think that actually any number of issues in the past few years could have led to protests on this level. Uh, for example, candidates being prevented from running from office, uh, from being disqualified from office once they took power because of the fact that the, they were critical of, of China, um, or just the mobilizing of pro-Beijing mobs to attack politicians. However, uh, this issue became really big. And I think it is because of the fact that it affects all Hong Kongers. You might not necessarily be doing anything. Uh, you might not be a political actress and so forth. But if you've done something that violates Chinese law but is okay in Hong Kong, you could potentially still be deported to China to face charges for that. So why do people fear that so much? Why is it such a fear of being extradited to China? I mean, I know it's a pretty obvious question to ask, but, you know, sometimes you have to ask the obvious question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely true. I think that... Um, it is just that the concern is then that uh, these kind of precious freedoms of expression, which exist in Hong Kong, or the ability to uh, not have the government interfere in life, uh, you could just have the government come down on you arbitrarily um, for that. I mean, for example, in China, uh, there's a comic artist who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for uh, homoerotic fan fiction. And so, for example, let's say you're just someone that's minding their own business, just doing, uh, uh, you know, someone that is, is a... You, you might not actually be even politically involved and you could still be seen as violating Chinese law in some form. Um, and people do not have faith in the rule of law in China that this would be, that people would be facing fair trials. Um, and so this causes uh, panic, I think. And so, yeah, it is, uh, it is, I think, opposed by the majority of Hong Kong society, but the government is still claiming that it's a minority somehow as opposed to this bill and, and really just not listening. Um, or they claim that the bill is not an issue anymore now that it has been temporarily suspended. 
Activist Lung Kai Ping, he uh, removed his mask once he entered the state legislature during a protest on July 1st. They uh, were occupying the state legis- or the legislature in Hong Kong, and he took his mask off and allowed himself to be photographed. Everyone else was wearing masks. He took his mask off, allowed himself to be photographed. He was then quoted saying, I took off my mask because I want to let everyone know that we Hong Kongers have nothing more to lose. In your opinion, do Hong Kongers have anything else to lose? I think they do. Um, I think that there's still a lot to lose. Um, but I think that the risks that people are willing to take now are illustrative of that. Some people view this as, as being the final battle for, for Hong Kong. Um, Yang Kaiping is actually a friend of mine, and so I was quite surprised uh, to, to see that, oh, it was him actually that took off his mask in the Hong Kong Legislative Council. Um, and that is actually the thing that's very striking, that in the protest currently, Almost everybody is masked because the thing is that uh, the fear is that if you're public with your identity, the government can track you down and persecute you on charges such as, for example, rioting, uh, that you could be facing 10 years in jail um, on these charges of rioting. And, and Yang Kaiping now faces these charges. Nobody knows where he is even currently. Um, he's currently in hiding somewhere, although he has given some interviews. Um, and that, that's a scary thing that now young people, they are trying to avoid being photographed. For example, even just when they go to the protests, uh, they buy paper tickets. They don't use their subway cards because of the fact that this could be used to track them and to for the government to figure out that they are going to protest. Um, it is it is that um, things have gotten to that level in which uh, uh, people could be facing years behind bars for peacefully demonstrating, and that is that's a real danger. And I think that there's a sense of of crisis. There's a sense of finality, and so that's why people are willing to fight with the police and and break into buildings and and uh, willing to risk everything for that. Earlier this month, when they did enter the legislature, uh, they did a lot of graffiti, and one of the pieces of graffiti said, Sunflower HK, in reference to not only the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan, but HK for Hong Kong. What is the connection, if any, between the Sunflower Movement and the movement against the extradition bill? Do the two movements share any affinity? Do they support one another's cause? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so that was a reference to the fact that the Sunfire Movement, the uh, event that sparked it off was the month-long occupation of the Taiwanese legislature. And so actually in Hong Kong previously in 2014, I think in August, uh, there was also an attempt to occupy the Legislative Council. And that, some people took the view that that was inspired by Taiwan. Um, and for example, Liang Kaiping's speech in the Legislative Council, he did cite uh, the Sunfire Movement and say that we should occupy and try to mimic the example of Taiwan in which there was this occupation that managed to run for a month and it built up uh, legitimacy and it was attract- able to attract a lot of popular support. Um, so it's a protest tactic. And I think there's this, uh, there's this uh, inspiration from Taiwan in terms of protest tactics at times and vice versa. And I think both movements do support each other because there is the sense that the fate of Hong Kong and Taiwan are, are perhaps inextricably linked, that whatever happens regarding China, both places may they are facing the same issue and they may share the same fate. Um, I think Hong Kong, the situation is actually a lot worse because Taiwan is de facto independent and it has democratic elections, but the threat is still there. And I think uh, uh, prominent leaders of the Sunfire Movement and student activists have expressed support of Taiwan uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, a number of Taiwanese did go over to Hong Kong, including myself, um, to report on it or to observe or to participate. Um, at the same time, though, it is actually uh, harder for these kind of uh, acts of solidarity to take place now because of the fact that um, how an activist will be blocked at the border sometimes in Hong Kong. Uh, and so it's become more that Hong Kong activists are more easily able to get to Taiwan than vice versa. Um, you know, many key figures of, for example, the Umbrella Movement and the Sunfire Movement were actually friends way before either movement happened, before any of these figures were known publicly. Um, because of the fact that the world of activism between Taiwan, Hong Kong, and even China is actually sometimes just that small. 
Um, so you do have these expressions of support, but it's also a question, how can these different sides really help each other out? Whoops, missed my button. Uh, so uh, you write that in, in your me- recent writing at New Blue Magazine. You write, in past days, Hong Kong has also, been fi- has also seen physical attacks on demonstrators by pro-Beijing groups. The past week has been uh, has seen spread of Lenin walls, consisting of walls with sticky notes with messages written on them by demonstrators in Hong Kong, with several dozen appearing in locations throughout Hong Kong and even outside of Hong Kong in cities with large, largely diasporic Hong Kong populations such as Toronto, Canada. Notably, a pedestrian tunnel in Tai Po has become known as the Lenin Tunnel because of the fact that a Lenin wall inside has expanded to cover the pedestrian tunnel as a whole. However, Lenin walls have become targeted by pro-Beijing mobs, sometimes leading to clashes with anti-extradition bill demonstrators. And you also point out that consequently it is a very real possibility that violence will escalate in Hong Kong in the near future. The Apple Daily reported earlier that the Hong Kong government was contemplating imposing a curfew on Hong Kong if this were to take place. They were likely going would likely uh, escalate to uh, even be worse situation that's taking place. So, do Hong Kong police always turn a blind eye to bro, pro Beijing mobs? I think oftentimes they do. Um, there's actually also just a pattern of the fact that they're responsible for acts of violence themselves, um, going all the way back to 2014. For example, uh, there's a famous incident of an activist being kind of dragged away and beaten up in a set of alleyways, when where police thought that nobody would watch, was watching and that there'd be no security cameras. Um, and so the police do act very similar to pro-Beijing mobs. Um, sometimes they will restrain them, but I think that it's, it's really quite minimal. And with, for example, something like the attacks on the, the Lenin walls, um, it is actually very well-organized. Sometimes they're actually coming in on in buses, in groups, to attack these Lenin walls. And that is just uh, kind of puzzling. It is the fact that you have people literally attacking uh, peaceful demonstrators. You have people attacking, flipping out over sticky notes on walls, basically. Um, but it is this kind of uh, it's reaction. I think it's an attempt to sow fear. Um, and sometimes it's not very clear who are these actors. I don't think that uh, they will be caught and face charges the same way that these uh, young demonstrators are, that there's been all these arrests already. Um, and that's that's a scary thing that the 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 law will side with uh, China, and that even if you have these these pro Beijing violent uh, mobs going around, they're not going to be the ones that face the consequences. And there are also uh, cases actually in which some of these attackers are former police officers themselves, um, which I think doesn't surprise in terms of uh, police brutality around the world. But uh, it is clear that where I think the Hong Kong police stands at, at present with regards to their uh, political affiliation. You also write that a number of violent incidents have broken out in Hong Kong in the past few days as protests against the extradition bill continue, most notably violent assaults on demonstrators in, by Hong Kong police in Sha Tin on Sunday left 40 mm. injured and 22 hospitalized with two in critical condition and two in serious condition. It may not be long now before demonstrators in Hong Kong see a fatality caused by police with the deaths that have taken place during the protests thus far having occurred as a result of suicides. How many suicides have occurred, mm. and what is the message that is being sent with the suicides? Mm. Yeah, so four suicides have occurred to date, um, and I think eventually we might see a fatality from police brutality. Um, the suicides, I think, are a reaction to despair. Some people act, did have pre-existing issues, but those were aggravated by the very tense social environment in Hong Kong currently, in which it doesn't look like there's hope for young people. And so that led some demonstrators to take their own lives. Um, there have also been some incidents in which some demonstrators have threatened to take their own lives, and this has prompted a sort of like manhunt from other protesters to look for this person before they kill themselves. Um, and actually, that was successful in at least one case, I think maybe two. 
Um, and it's thought that there might be more suicides and uh, that this is actually sparking a mental health crisis in Hong Kong uh, because of the sense of, of no future, of hopelessness, and that this... Uh, uh, some actually hope with their to take in, in taking their own lives that this can be galvanizing of the movement. I think that is actually something one sees periodically with social movements. Um, there's a similar incident in Taiwan in 2015 in which a student demonstrator killed himself and hoping to spark a movement with that. It did actually succeed um, in, in sparking a building occupation. But I think this, this is something that occurs. And I think that with the uh, police actions, they're becoming increasingly brutal. Uh, in mid-June, in mid, uh, there is the uh, firing of tear gas, which led to a lot of controversy, in which police fired more tear gas in one day than they did the entire umbrella movement combined, a 79-day movement. And then you have this uh, event which happened last Sunday uh, in a mall in Sha Tin, in which the police kettled protesters and came in and attacked them. And there, there are protesters that needed oxygen after that are hospitalized now. And it is just this level of uh, physical force is, is quite astounding that the Hong Kong police are just becoming increasingly violent uh, that they are, are viewing the public as their enemy and so forth. And it is thought by some journalists uh, who are investigating, for example, the gun types that police are carrying, that police could even be potentially carrying live rounds at this point. And there was actually a uh, set of hollow point bullets that were discovered in a magazine in the demonstration last Sunday that was just on the floor dropped, presumably by police. And so that could actually mean that police are carrying uh, live arms and they could eventually resort to this. I mean, that is, that is a very scary thing. Um, the Hong Kong police might actually just use actual bullets towards the crowd. One last question for you, Brian. We've been speaking with journalist Brian Hugh. He is a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. You can find out more about New Bloom by going to newbloommag.net. And you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh. That's H-I-O-E. All of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell. All this month's guests were suggested by you, our listeners. Listener Matt on Twitter, at Asia Art Tours, suggested Brian, which means that he will be getting a secret mystery prize from us for suggesting Brian as a guest. And I want to thank Matt for suggesting Brian to be back on our show. One last question for you, Brian, as always. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, one expects demonstrations to continue in Hong Kong with the seeming normalization of demonstrations into daily life. Another mass rally has been called for by the Civil Human Rights Front on July 21st, that's tomorrow, with further demonstrations scheduled to take place in Kennedy Town and Sung Kwan Oh on July 28th, that's the following Sunday. How violent do you expect tomorrow's protests to be? Good question. I think that during the day, it will be all right. But usually at night, uh, you have demonstrators willing to take direct action and so forth. And I think that in this case, uh, particularly after what happened last week, there's, things will only get worse. <laughs> I think things will only get worse. Uh, there's been a pattern of increasing violence as time goes on. And I don't know what happens, but we'll just have to see. Brian, I really appreciate you being back on the show with us. I'm not going to wait till listeners suggest you being back on our show. We will have you back on real soon so we can continue following the uh, crisis in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Portugal's revolution to overthrow their dictatorship in 1974 led to a beautiful experiment in politics, including the way citizens engaged with politics. A wonderful system was created that would be the envy of any revolution today, but it was crushed. It failed. However, many reforms were left behind, and the uprising has had an indelible mark on Portugal to this day. We'll get a guided tour of the revolution, what it was, and what it still could be when we talk to labor historian Raquel Varela, author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. 
It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1934, 85 years ago in Minneapolis, where truckers and market workers had been on strike since May, police escorting a strike-breaking truck hauling fruit and vegetables encountered another vehicle full of club-wielding picketers who tried to block their progress because everything was just peachy back in the good old days when America was still great. The strike organized by leaders in the Teamsters Union and the Communist League of America had mushroomed from a work stoppage by truckers who hauled coal, fresh produce, and other commodities in the city. Due to the Great Depression, which was happening at the time, many drivers were only getting work when the weather was so cold that people were forced to buy coal. And even then, they were subjected to brutally long hours with low pay. The picketers clash with police in the street escalated until the police pulled shotguns and opened fire first on the strikers in the truck and then on crowds of workers who came running from the surrounding neighborhood because when America was great, cops wouldn't do greedy bosses dirty work by killing workers. One witness later reported that he'd seen a man stepping on his own intestines and another striker carrying his own severed arm. I'm guessing this is after the cops started shooting. And these weren't acts of protest, although a striker carrying his own arm or stepping on his own intestines sends a pretty powerful message. I don't know what the message is, but it's damn powerful. Two workers were killed and 67 were injured. The carnage provoked Minnesota's governor, Floyd Olson, which is like the most Minnesota name, to declare martial law. And the strike continued for another month until a settlement was finally reached with most of the workers' demands actually met. Yep, when America was great, bosses would get cops to kill their workers so a month later they could give all the workers the demands they actually wanted. Gosh, America sure was great in the past. I only hope we never make it that great again. In Rotten History, 1977-42 years ago, the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, suffered the third great flood in its history. You'd think they would move. When a thunderstorm dumped 12 inches of rain on the area within 24 hours, causing six dams to fail. Man, we are so lucky nothing like that happens anymore. The most famous Johnstown flood had occurred in 1889, when a catastrophic dam failure resulted in the deaths of some 2,200 people. Second flood in 1936 had killed 25 people. But since that time, the Army Corps of Engineers had spent years working on flood control measures so that Johnstown re residents were mostly convinced that such a disaster could never happen again. And I'm starting to worry about Thunderball Thayer living in New Orleans' low-lying Ninth Ward. In fact, civic leaders were proudly declaring their town to be a flood-free. But the 1977 flash flood and multiple dam failures inundated the area with more than 130 million gallons of water, killing 84 people, causing more than $350 million in property damage. But chances of huge amounts of rain leading to floods? I mean, that's what's the likelihood of that will ever, ever happen again. Luckily, we have the Army Corps of Engineers, and with their record of preventing flooding, I think I'll move to higher ground that's Rotten History, and this week's question from hell is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on, planet, on our planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? What's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling toward unsustainable global temperatures? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets the brand new This Is Hell trucker cap, which will be available during our fourth annual 
20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show next Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Again, the question from Mel is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll go back to the Portuguese Revolution of 1974 and 1975 to find out what can be learned from the last rebellion to question who has control over the means of production. Next, we'll dig deep into the fight between advocates for public land and those who want to exploit them and and sell them off. And our last guest this week will discuss fugitivity and why blackness is trouble, is lawlessness, which makes sense when you realize how unjust the law is that is enforced and imposed upon black Americans. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin tests our ornithological knowledge. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what's going on on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll keep reminding you about next week's party. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. And we want to thank some listeners for sharing the show, others for supporting the show at thisishell.com when they click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio so clearly and sadly Noam's gone insane this is hell the Portuguese revolution of 1974 not only toppled a dictatorship but it ushered in a new way for the Portuguese to engage with politics leading to beautiful explosions of direct democracy throughout the country only to be crushed here to tell us what can be learned from the Portuguese revolution by uh, would-be revolutionaries today Labor historian Raquel Varela is author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. Welcome to This Is Hell, Raquel. Hello. Hello, everybody. And thank you for listening and uh, this invitation. Thank and you. And I'm sorry for my broken English. <laughs> oh, that's okay. It sounds great so far to me. It's far better than my broken Portuguese. Uh, Raquel Varela is a professor at New University of Lisbon and senior visiting professor at the Fluminense Federal University. She is president of the International Association of Strikes and uh, Social Conflicts and co-editor of its journal. You can find out more about her at Raquel Cardera Varela. .wordpress.com. July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell. All of our guests this month are suggested by you, our listeners. Listener Chris suggested Raquel, writing, I just finished this book, Raquel Varela's A People's History of the the Portuguese Revolution. Great history and analysis. I cannot find her in any of your previous interviews and think she would be great to interview. Portugal's like a forgotten revolution that she points out is minimized as a coup against a dictatorship that was chaotic for a while, then a transition to a Western-style democracy, when in fact it was a situation of dual power for over a year with revolutionary organization from below that won massive reforms before being pushed back by the socialist and Stalinist communist parties in alliance with the right. Also found uh, this in April's Jacobin. Today we celebrate the Carnation Revolution, an interview with Raquel by a past guest on your show, David Broder. Anyway, keep up the excellent work you do. Chris, thanks, Chris, and for suggesting Raquel as a guest. We are going to send you our secret mystery prize gift for 
suggesting her be on our show. Uh, you write, uh, Raquel, for those who want to overthrow the system that oppresses them, it helps to learn and remember and to be inspired by others who have tried to do the same. So I want to get a feeling of what this revolution was about, what caused this revolution. Over the last few years, we've had guest after guest tell us that to learn and be inspired by those who have succeeded before us, you should look at those who have been the most resilient and those are the most marginalized. In other words, as a recent guest told us here on the show, uh, we'll all be free in the United States when black, transgender, disabled people are finally free. So look to the most marginalized for their success in standing up to power. Look to the most oppressed. How oppressed were the people of Portugal that led them to overthrowing the dictatorship? Well, uh, this is uh, probably the most radical, uh, well, certainly the most radical revolution uh, after the Second World War in Europe. <clears throat> Although Portugal was a backward country and it's still a semi-peripheral country, was a European country. So now we know by the classified documents of the U.S. that uh, they were extremely worried I'm sorry, they were extremely worried uh, about Portugal, about what Gerald Ford called at the time the Red Mediterranean. What happened here was that due to an even and combined development, the last anachronic empire, which had colonies and forced labor until 1974, uh, there was an extraordinary moment where the anti-colonial revolutions of the people mainly in Guinea, which the leadership was Amilcar Cabral and Angola and Mozambique, uh, were uh, together in 74-75 with... Uh, uh... That's the second time. Why do we keep losing people? What the hell's going on? <laughs> All right, we'll uh, reattach, uh, rehook up here with uh, Raquel in just a moment. All right, what was the question I was asking her here so we know where we are? Oh, yeah, why were they so oppressed? <laughs> I'll get back to that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com, or like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio, and like us on Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, and join us at next week's fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show this is art which is taking place at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago's west ridge little india neighborhood uh join us starting at three o'clock next saturday it's then gonna run the rest of the day and all night long and we hope to see you all there so uh raquel as i was saying or as i was asking uh how oppressed were the people of portugal you started talking about the gerald ford uh documents and the worry about the uh red mediterranean if you'd like to continue on that yeah um well, the anti-colonial revolutions uh, that uh, started in 1961 in the former uh, Portuguese empires, uh, uh, this uh, struggle uh, led to the officers of the, the middle-rank officers of the army to do a coup d'état in Lisbon in 25th of April 74. But this coup d'état opened the door, has opened the door to the most radical process in Europe, and one of the most important revolutions in the 20th century, and somehow in the 21st century. Why I said this? Because uh, we have seen here uh, um, that uh, more or less one-third of the Portuguese people were involved in dual-power organizations, Workers' Commission, Neighborhoods' Commission, Soldiers' Commission. This is 3 million people in 10 million 
They were involved in protests, strikes, and dual power organizations, organizations against the state that have built from the rank and file the welfare state and the right and security of jobs and the labor rights. But And this, let's say that the vanguard, to use a typical concept, was really the industrial working class of the three main cities, but also together with middle sectors, so physicians, teachers, nurses. What we see is that, as this is a late revolution in the 70s, the, the, the service society was already fully built. And these sectors, uh, uh, they were together with the traditional uh, industrial working class to make uh, to make a new country, and this is really a new country because I, I have to remember to our listeners, to uh, people that are listening to us, that uh, Portugal uh, uh, was extremely poor country where the, it was the longest dictatorship of Europe, 48 years. And uh, in this extremely poor country, even in Lisbon, 100,000 people in 74 were living in shanty towns with no access to water. And just one-fourth of the Portuguese population had access to water in good conditions at the time, to give an example of how backward it was. But it is uneven because this country was an European country where during the 60s flew international capitals looking for uh, uh, for valuation and uh, revaluation of uh, of the value of capital. So uh, there, here in Portugal, there was cheap labor, but working in a most modern um, subcontract system or even multinationals from U.S., from France, from Belgium, from Germany. Uh, and uh, all all this, somehow we had still like the Middle Age, people in the countryside where there was uh, in the South uh, a deep land reform, uh, uh, was <coughs> were together, this, uh, this um, rural uh, Portugal where people worked with hands, were together with, uh, for example, one of the biggest... Uh, a shipyard uh, construction sector of the entire world that was in Lisbon, built with Swedish capital. And this helped also to uh, this uh, huge amount of contradictions can also uh, explain, of course, with the defeat of the colonial world, with the fact that there was a dictatorship, and this dictatorship made that the state didn't have a way to uh, manage. There were no parties, no not reformist parties, no unions that were able to mediate between the state and the people. So on the 25th of April, on exactly that day, in almost every company in the world, hospitals, schools, a little Soviet was born. People went, not because they were socialists at the beginning or they had a, consci a socialist conscience. They never heard the word socialism before. They went to their jobs and asked, what shall we do? Well, first of all, we have to support, we have to say no to the colonial war. Uh, one million people were mobilized, men, young men were mobilized during 13 years to the colonial war against the African people. 
So the first thing they did on the 25th of April, in every company, almost every company, and certainly every, every company in the next uh, two weeks, was to say, we say no to the colonial war. We want democratic free elections. But immediately, this is how a democratic revolution turns to a social revolution. They ask themselves, but who are we? Well, we are workers. So what do we want? We want eight hours work limit. Uh, we want equal pay for equal job. Uh, we won't because uh, women was uh, were very strong during the Portuguese Revolution because as men were recruited to work, there was a huge feminization of the labor force. Uh, we want uh, a welfare state. We want health. We want free universal health system. We want free uh, universal education until the university to everyone. Uh, we want uh, Saturday and Sunday to rest. We want uh, pay holidays. And so this is how an incredible process made that the most backward people, even sometimes we have to say subjectively cowards, uh, or, uh, during 48 years became the most bravest and encouraged people to take part in a process of change. And this is what I want to underline. What we have learned to the Portuguese Revolution is that people can change. They can come. They can. They can change from being afraid of being a coward to being brave and not being afraid anymore. They can change from being individualistic to learn how to cooperate in freedom. They can change from um, from um, uh, uh, from being uh, uh, just uh, dedicated to work and family and certainly dedicate themselves to the community and taking part of pol uh, taking part of political, uh, of public uh, sector. Uh, politics was not anymore something of specialists. It's amazing to see people, even that they could not read. 30% of the Portuguese people um, could not read properly at the time or could not read at all. And they, uh, uh, these people went to the neighborhoods commission and started to say how the houses should be why we should occupy a place to be a kindergarten, why the children should be taken care. Uh, they have done this together with physicians that didn't have access to the public system to build, to occupy houses that nowadays are part of the public system of health. So I believe that in the Portuguese revolution, we see the best of the people coming out. Uh, we see that people can change and really make a different world. And today, this is a huge lesson, because what we have seen is that the bourgeoisie or the main classes or the corporations and the state cannot resolve, cannot bring a decent society to the majority of the people. And what we saw in the Portuguese Revolution, and that's why I feel it's so bad to don't remember this process, because this is a historical process, very rare in history, well, from which we can learn a lot. Contrary to Chile, in 1973, the Portuguese Revolution was a, a semi-victory because in order to stop a revolutionary uh, that workers take, take the power, the Portuguese bourgeoisie had to call the reformist parties and build what they have done in France after the Second World War, welfare state and security in jobs. And uh, they had to nationalize uh, the banks, the big companies, and make a land reform. So they were obliged to do reforms uh, in this revolution. 
and we have to look how these people have behaved, how they have organized, how they have from they have come from a society where politics was forbidden, unions were forbidden, parties were forbidden, to a process where they never they they were organized every day, every day they were debating in which society they want to live. And they have built wonderful things. Uh this and this is not a dream. It's also not obrerism. We cannot say that workers can do whatever they want because we have seen workers taking taken uh, very bad options uh, on the 20th century, but we have to study the moments where they have taken wonderful options. And when we saw also in these moments of identity and fragmentation of the working class, what we saw in Portugal in 1974-75 was men and women fighting together, was uh, black and uh, white people uh, fighting together, was shanty towns and high qualified workers fighting together, was that the working class was able to have a universal pro pro uh, project of changing society. And uh, uh, contrary to Stalinism in the 30s, uh, the, the Portuguese road to socialism in 74, 75 was full of liberty. So it also shows that workers can take uh, power, can organize themselves in liberty. So uh, one of the things that I was um, noticing about your book is that a lot of times you'll see whenever there's a mass movement that takes place, historians will describe it as a spontaneous event, as if it just came out of thin air. But the fact that this left leftist revolution did take place, the armed forces movement, which, had, which uh, in, initiated the coup, they were eventually surpassed by the revolutionaries who kept moving that revolution farther and farther and farther to the left. That would suggest to me that a left movement had already existed, if not underground, but existed in Portugal. So what do we miss when we think of revolutions, think of mass movements that, over, that overthrow dictatorships, what do we miss when we only see that mass movement as something of spontaneity and not something that may have been brewing for quite a long time? Well, this is a very interesting question. I believe that there is a huge part of spontaneity when people go to their places just screaming uh, uh, down, uh, let's downthrown the fascism or uh, the end of colonial war. This is absolutely spontaneous. But during the revolution, and the 19 months of the revolution, what we've seen is that political parties were absolutely essential either to the revolution and to the counter-revolution. So parties organization and the party uh, leaderships, leaderships not in the sense of elite, but in the sense of educating cadres, educating leaders were very important. And in the underground, there was a huge part, uh, there was already a um, vanguard party, the Communist Party uh, faithful to the Soviet Union with around 3,000 members, and the same number divided by numerous uh, small parties, uh, mainly Maoist, but also Gevarist, pro-Cuban, uh, Trotskyist uh, um, uh, parties. And these uh, people that were uh, in universities, in industrial schools, in technical schools, 
were very important to understand the development of the Portuguese Revolution, as well as we have, we have to understand that the Socialist Party, faithful to the U.S. policy, and the Communist Party, faithful to the U.S. U.R.S.S. policy, Soviet policy, they were very important to understand why the Portuguese Revolution uh, finished uh, uh, with the support of the Socialist Party and the complicity of the Communist Party. Neither the Soviet Union nor the U.S. wanted a, a socialist Portugal at the time. And uh, the, the strongness of this party was also the weakness of, uh, 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 of the revolutionary organizations that were quite weak, although never strong in Europe as they were before. So the Stalinists, for the first time, their hegemony after the May of 68, it, in May of 68, was, ready, was, was already quite questioned the hegemony of the pro-Soviet parties. But in the Portuguese Revolution, the, the revolutionary parties, they managed to win some of the main big factories and, uh, and uh, a huge influence in public sector. So uh, we also see that uh, although they were weaker than the socialists and the communists, uh, they uh, have reached uh, some influence uh, that was some kind of new as well, and it it helps to explain to explain also the radicalization of the process. Why was the revolution peaceful? What does that tell you? What what should that reveal to all of us about the revolution that it turned into the Carnation Revolution? Even though it was a military coup, it was a peaceful revolution. What what does that tell you about the revolution? What does that explain to you about the revolution? Well, this question, I believe it's easier to answer than the previous one, uh, because the army was defeated in 13 years of colonial war, so the army uh, was not uh, in disposal of fighting their own people anymore. And this is very important to explain the Portuguese uh, revolution, but we, ha we cannot say that it's totally peaceful, because the extreme right, and the, the right of the uh, Catholic Church and even the right of the Socialist Party, they have support violent attacks to the left groups and to the unions when in 75 uh, they felt they could lose the states. So the violence in the Portuguese Revolution was exclusively an extreme right violence uh, supported, we know now by researchers from colleagues from Madrid and Sevilla, extremely supported by the Francoist regime as well. Oh, you uh, write that I prefer not to use the word fascism to describe the autocratic dictatorship, but I respect the rights and sense of those who suffered under the dictatorship to call it fascist. Um, and then you write that the fact is that Portuguese capitalism was locked into international capitalism. The Portuguese empire became one of the pillars of the free world, a founding member of NATO and recipient of modern arms and expert advice on techniques of repression. Capital was investing in the shipyards and large modern factories, as you're pointing out, in the industrial belt of Lisbon. The African wars could not have continued for very long without NATO weaponry and equipment. International capital was benefiting from the supply of raw materials for Angola and the uh, uh, sourcing of cheap labor for South Africa. Africa, Angola being a colony of Portugal. What does it say to you about international capitalism 
when it can be so easily confused with fascism? Well, this is a much more complex uh, answer. We don't uh, have, uh, it's not easy to have documents that relate immediately uh, support to the dictatorship of uh, international capital. Definitely, we have documents and it was proved the straight relation between the big economic Portuguese groups and the dictatorship. This, uh, this uh, is, uh, there is no doubt about this, and it was historical research uh, by historical research shown. But what we can say is that all the big five families of Portugal that controlled the economy at the time, they had investment from foreign capital, foreign capital that knew that was were invested in a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship in uh, Portugal, and. Um, uh, 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 and uh, absolutely, uh, I, I, I have to say, how can I say this? So the Portuguese dictatorship was quite brutal in uh, in Portugal, but it was much worse in the colonies. So, for example, here they used to arrest and uh, the, the political members of the Communist Party. Um, we, but they could. Uh, somehow be arrested and go to judgment, although some of them were killed. There were... Hello? Hello? I'm still here. I'm still here. Okay. There was a weird pop, but don't worry about it. uh, But there were massive killings, we know nowadays, in the colonies. So, for example, the leader of the liberation movement, they were killed in thousands. Uh, there was no law there, not even a dictatorship, not even a law of the dictatorship. Uh, and uh, all foreign companies knew when they were invested in Angola and when they were invested in Lisbon that they were invested in the nightmare of millions of Portuguese and African people. Why I do not call it fascist? Well, Portugal in the colonies was a typical colonial state. Uh, with no freedom, with full oppression, with no law. Uh, In uh, the metropolis, it was, I would call, a Bonapartist regime, extremely extremely tough regime with no liberty, but uh, there were no militias. I, I would say that fascism, we have to use the word fascism when there are militias, armed militias by the elite to fight the unions and the political parties. This was not the case. The state had full power, and they didn't use militias, except during the Spanish Civil War in the 30s, because Salazar regime was afraid that the Spanish Civil War could be won and destroy their regime. So they have built militias during the 30s. But after that, the army was enough to uh, persecute uh, and silence the resistance. So you also write that what is considered the end of the revolution, the fall of the fifth provisional government at the end of August 1975, 
was not the end of the revolution, but merely the maturing of the revolutionary crisis. That is the moment when the political parties, namely the Popular Democratic Party, the PPD, the Socialist Party, and the Portuguese Communist Party at the top of society, and the armed forces movement allied together or not, were no longer able to govern, and those from below were no longer willing to be governed. Despite the pretensions of the Socialist and Communist Parties, state and revolution drifted apart in 1974 and 1975. Indeed, the revolution was constructed against the state. What do you mean by the revolution being constructed against the state? Was the concept of the revolution to not create a state? No, the idea is that today we see a lot of theories coming from the left of the post-Marxism, defending that uh, we have to fight in the state, within the state, for the changes. And what we see is that in the Portuguese Revolution, uh, the the workers' organization, they they fight the state from their own organization. It was not from the parliament was from workers' commissions. They fight the state uh, with a power against the state. That's why we use the concept of dual power. So even the reforms, the classical reforms in capitalism as the welfare state, they were won by organizations that were not inside the state. Uh, That's uh, I think it's, uh, it's, well, it is a common debate to all revolutions in the 20th century. In fact, what distinguishes a revolution from other periods is that workers are able to organize their own, um, uh, their own centers of power. And why we have a double power? Because we have the state power and the workers' power. Somewhere, somewhere sometime, there is a revolutionary crisis and one of these fundamental classes has to reach the power or be defeated. But uh, what we have seen is very interesting in the dialogue with this uh, post-Marxist sector is that the biggest reforms in capitalism were not done in the parliament, in the election process, etc., uh, but they were done uh, outside the state when the the, the 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 corporations and the state they, they were really afraid of losing power and they made some concessions some concessions to the working class both manual and intellectual sectors of course more than anything, then, was this a revolution against Portuguese imperialism? Was this an anti-war revolution? Was it more about, at the, at the very outset, did the dictatorship fall because of the colonial wars, more than any pressure it might have been fe- feeling from underground left-wing movements? Yes. Well, we have to distinguish two things. There is a democratic revolution, like uh, February in Russia in 1970, and this is no doubt related to the colonial war. So we have to say thank you to the anti-liberation movement, much more than thank you, because we estimate that 100,000 people were killed in the colonies fighting the Portuguese army during 13 years. So the first freedom, we own it to the forced labors and the uh, liberation movements in Angola, Guinea, and Mozambique. But after this democratic revolution, what we saw is that the most dynamic sectors were were, uh, that made a social revolution. 
question, not just question the political regime or the war, but questioning the the economic system. These definitely the most dynamic sectors were transport, industrial, logistics sector, and also the public uh, sector, public services. Uh, and and this was an uh, inspiration also to the colonies afterward because we saw a, a huge number of strikes in '75, for example, in Angola and Mozambique, inspired by the occupation uh, strikes and sit-down strikes in Portugal. So it's a movement. It's a global movement. It's a it's a revolution that arrived from Africa in Lisbon. And it flies from Lisbon to Africa again, and also flies to Spain, because the dictatorship in Spain cannot survive to the Portuguese soul of dictatorship. The Greek colonial dictatorship cannot survive. And even in my opinion, I've developed this idea in this book. Hope we can, the readers can discuss it, because this is just an hypothesis. But I believe that the neoliberal policy that, that were applied, that were made in the 80s after the defeat of the miners' strike. The plan was to do it after the oil, the oil crisis in the 70s. But they could not do it because the Portuguese Revolution and the Vietnam uh, changed politically the, the reaction to the crisis. This, all the crises, all the revolutions take place in the 20th century within economic crises, but not all economic crises uh, give birth to a revolution. But what we saw in 74-75 in uh, two uh, countries that were not the most important countries in the world, Vietnam and Portugal, they became uh, the center of resistance and there, were, there was no possible to apply and make the neoliberal policies. They had to postpone it in the 80s. Because in the 80s, except for the glorious miners and some sectors, uh, there was no, um, not there was no uh, uh, political collective answer to the counter-cyclical measures of the bourgeoisie after the double dip of the big crisis 81-84. So we also have to think of not just what has happened, but what could have happened if there was no uh, revolution in this uh, small country of Europe. Often when there are uprisings, the U.S. mainstream media immediately rushes to the economic conditions that they believe caused the revolution, the uprising to occur. And you, as you were saying, uh, not all economic uh, downfalls lead to revolution, and not all revolutions have some sort of economic problem within them. What happens when we just focus on the economics, on the bottom line, on how uh, the people of a place like Portugal are being affected economically? What do we miss in the under, our understanding of the revolution in Portugal when we only focus on maybe the economic needs or demands of the people? Well... Uh, we cannot make this approach uh, leaking revolutions to economic disaster. Otherwise, Africa would have had the biggest uh, revolutionary process, and this is not true at all. And the May of '68 was extremely radical revolution with economic crisis in '75 and with a political economic crisis 
with the Algerian Revolution, but we cannot make a mechanic uh, a mechanic relation. Yet we cannot also forget, because revolutions depend on numerous factors. Economy is one of them, but uh, political organization also. The state. Do we have a rigid state as we had in Portugal, or do we have a very, uh, a very uh, uh, long uh, tradition uh, uh, with a capacity of negotiation of the bourgeoisie as we have, for example, in England, with a huge uh, capacity to mediation between the workers and the state. We also have to see the who is the working class. It's mainly industrial working class, qualified working class, or rural uh, poor working classes. Uh, so uh, there, uh, there are numerous factors to analyze the revolution, but what we cannot forget, which is also a, a rare, uh, methodological error in my point of view, is that all revolutions take place in eco all political revolutions take place in a, a process of uh, dec national decadence, uh, national uh, economic crisis. But not all economic crises lead to a revolution. So we have to understand why some of them, well, we have the big example in 2008. In fact, the economic crisis led to revolutionary process in the uh, Arab Spring, but in very backward countries with a uh, uh, huge sector of informal and even rural areas, as we had in Libya, even in Tunisia and Egypt, etc. Uh, and unfortunately, these countries were alone. There was no uh, revolutionary process in Europe or in U.S. supporting these countries. So it was easy for the counter-revolution to uh, to uh, defeat this wonderful revolutionary process of the Arab Spring. So, but apart from the Arab Spring, uh, that was defeated with uh, fundamentalism and even with uh, U.S. intervention and European intervention, etc. Uh, apart from the Arab Spring, what we saw in 2008 was not any other revolutionary process against these uh, awful counter-cyclical measures of the elites in order, of the bourgeoisie, in order to um, rebuild their profit standards. So the working classes, they, were, they had suffered a defeat in 2008. I have no doubt about this. It's not, a, it's not an eternal defeat. Uh, but it is a defeat when the, when the bourgeoisie is able to cut 20 or 25 percent of the income and make massive unemployment and make massive cuts in public uh, uh, in public sector, which is social salary. The working classes were defeated. In my opinion, we have to think why, why, what was the role of social democratic parties? What was the role of bureaucratic unions? Uh, but uh, we we cannot change. Uh, we cannot be so mechanic to think that revolutions uh, don't can take place without economic regression because this is not true. All revolutions in the 20th century have taken place, 
during or after economic crisis. Because the process of economic crisis it's not, it's not just a possibility of reaction of the working class. It's a crisis in the, in the dominant classes. It's, it's a crisis in the elite because the cake is not so big anymore to divide among the fractions of the bourgeoisie. So there is a crisis of the state. There is a weakness of the state with economic crisis. Oh, um, you write that the banks were nationalized and expropriated with no compensation whatsoever, and the right to free time was absolutely pivotal. Take the case of the demonstration by bakers working long hours, whose a slogan was, we want to sleep with our wives. As a slogan, it is very interesting. Yeah, I think it's great. Because nowadays, we take it for granted that at 11 at night, there are people selling socks in supermarkets or working on Volkswagen assembly lines. People won not just price freezes so that they w- could have decent meals, but the right to leisure and culture. They also won the right to housing, indeed, by occupying vacant homes that were destined for speculation. Even judges sometimes back them, as in the city of Setubal. I'll remind you that today in Portugal, there are 700,000 vacant houses owned by real estate funds, which do not pay taxes. Is what the Portuguese revolutionaries fought for still being fought for in Portugal today? And for that matter, what the left is still fighting for globally. Well, um, I believe uh, the demands uh, are more or less the same in the sense that people want a safe job, they want to work, and they want to have their uh, security in health, in education, in, in, in what is basic to, to survive. Uh, but um, uh, uh, the conscience of the people, unfortunately, I think it's it's not as it's not as it was in seventy four seventy five. So people take for granted that they have to work uh, extra time to be able to pay their accounts. They take for granted that their children cannot uh, eat the best. Uh, uh, natural juice, and they give them chocolates because chocolate it's much cheaper. Or they take for granted that we don't have cities with uh, huge green parks where the working classes can play, but the children are uh, in home closed uh, with the iPhone or with a game. So there is a degradation of the living conditions of the working class, uh, and. Uh, uh, usually, and there is a huge. Uh, um, I coordinate several studies on burnout of the workers in my university. So people are extremely depressed, demoralized, alienated in their jobs, and they. The, the first tendency is to blame themselves. Is not to uh, explain the labor organization that makes people unhealthy and how to fight it and how to organize. So there is a depolitalization of the Portuguese society, and there is this idea that uh, the parliament and the parties can solve everything uh, from uh, to us. Uh, there is not a sense of political activity, political mobilization. Even political discussion is very weak compared to 1975. You told David Broder in your interview at Jacobin Magazine uh, that you have written more than 10 books on the revolution in a decade of research, and you always hear people saying the same thing. They say, 
These were the happiest days of my life during the Portuguese Revolution. In these two years, human beings were reunited with their humanity. This legacy still lasts today, and it is the only one that can save us from the abyss of the present. How does the Portuguese Revolution suggest we reunite with our humanity? Oh, I think this is the biggest lesson. It's absolutely true. I was looking for several um, pictures in eight archives in Europe uh, for the Portuguese Revolution. And always the pictures, people are smiling. They are very poor and they are smiling because they are fighting, because they believe there is a hope, because they believe they can change the things. It's the self-determination process that Perry Anderson explains in this concept, but now being alive. <laughs> so it's absolutely wonderful to see that people uh, uh, were happy at that time. And I, I, I have to say this, people were poorer than they are nowadays, but they were happy, not because when people are poor they are happy, this is of course a ridiculous explanation, but because there was a hope there was a sense of collectiveness. There was a sense of cooperation. There was a sense that we are changing. There was a connection between manual and intellectual work. There was, no, there was uh, almost no division between leaders and uh, uh, rank-and-file, or all rank-and-file workers could become leaders also. So we were much here of being uh, human and behave as human and not and not uh, uh, behave as uh, as we behave nowadays with a huge competition that makes us sick it's absolutely terrible we don't see the other people in our colleagues in work in our neighborhoods in our country in international look uh, 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 unions are fighting internationals to keep their jobs, to keep a company in order, and uh, and they sell the idea that they can earn less in order to keep a company. This is international globalization. What we need is internationalism, is that these unions organize themselves together a strike for increasing the the salaries in the entire world to put people together. This is the sense of what we need, and that's what we have learned in the Portuguese Revolution. It is possible to live in a socialist society with freedom, and it's much more interesting. We were, I was not alive at the time, but I'm sure we were happy at the time. We, we find ourselves um, without being afraid uh, we find ourselves that the problems existed, but we could solve it. And there was a possibility of creativity, autonomy, changing the world. And when we have changed the world, when my fellow <laughs> uh, uh, Portuguese and uh, other so many international people were here, when they have tried to change the world, they have changed themselves. This is extremely beautiful. People have changed. They have become better people when they have tried to change the world. So there is a good uh, thing we have to learn from the Portuguese Revolution. It's not because we are going to do yoga at 7 o'clock in the morning and then go to an awful job. 
that makes our personal life terrible, that we're going to be happy. We cannot adapt to terrible conditions. We have to change terrible conditions in order to change ourselves. We have been speaking with labor historian Raquel Varela. She is author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, which is obviously part of the uh, kind of genre that uh, Howard Zinn, uh, the late, great Howard Zinn, who was a guest on our show several times, um, uh, part of that series, the People's History series, which are always fantastic. You can find out more about Raquel at raquelcarderavarela.wordpress.com. July is Listener Appreciation Month, and we want to thank listener Chris for suggesting Raquel as our guest this week. One last question for you, Raquel, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write the revolution was to be defeated with a coup d'etat on 25 November 1975, which in turn instituted a representative democracy within the framework of capitalism, which inevitably eroded social rights. The defeat of the revolution put an end to fundamental democracy, particularly in the barracks, factories, companies, schools, and neighborhoods. There is nothing unusual about this, but it may be that Portugal is the first example of the success of a defeating revolution by replacing it with establishment of a representative democratic regime. Why is the eroding of those rights inevitable under uh, representative democracy within a framework of capitalism? Did the Portuguese revolution prove that representative democracy is not democracy? Yes. The representative democracy is a form of regime where democratic uh, rights political rights are uh, uh, assured by the state, but uh, uh, the dictatorship in companies, in labor, persisted. Uh, there are no democracy in the companies, and uh, there is, uh, we, we doubt this uh, democracy in what we produce, uh, we cannot uh, be free. Raquel, that was a great answer to the question from hell. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so this, much. This was, sorry uh, for my English. No, no, your English is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> this really is an amazing history that I think our listeners would be very interested in reading, especially those who are trying to find alternative ways of living. So I really appreciate this book. This is really an amazing uh, work, and I can't thank you enough for being on our show this week. Thank you. Take care. Another end of the world is possible. This is how public lands in the U.S. are the marvel of the world, attracting tourists from around the globe every year to enjoy the United States' natural beauty. The vast majority of Americans adore their public lands, yet politicians are constantly floating ideas to privatize the land and give it to those who would profit from their inaccessibility and destruction. We'll find out everything we can about the public v. private land debate when we speak in a few to political science and environmental studies scholar Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer. Alex, what have you been up to on social media while I take care of a technical difficulty? Uh, I shared a piece from the website that I visit every day, Communists in Situ. Situ? Situ? I don't know. Actually, I still never figured out what situ means. Uh, but it's one of my favorite sites uh, that I really recommend to everyone. I think Pavlos Rufos, past guest uh, Pavlos Rufos, writes for them. And uh, it was a piece called Expropriate Everything. Uh, if that's got you hooked, then uh, read the rest of that piece. It's really great. It's all about uh, 
property as a source of revenue in capitalism. Also, there was a big Chomsky interview in Jacobin on climate change, empire, and the consent machine uh, that I think is pretty sobering and pretty good. Uh, it's always great to read some gnome. And Samin Amir, uh, uh, Samir Amin, uh, sorry for transposing those. Samin Amir had a really great piece uh, on the new imperialist imperialist structure for monthly review. Uh, that's great. Also, monthly review, great stuff there every uh, every day. So that's one of the sites I check out all the time. And then I will see the rest of the time to explaining that I learned uh, from listener Jack, uh, a this is hell fan, uh, who tweets at Marks and Sparks got into an extremely long Twitter confrontation with past guest Larry Pinckney, uh, who his 2007, 2008 interview on Obama is one of the best things we've done in a really long time. 2008, right uh, after Obama was elected. Uh, yeah, well, he's a Trump guy now. Is he? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> so listener Jack, uh, Marks and Sparks on Twitter, <laughs> just got us involved in this long argument back and forth. Uh, like, Pinckney was driven so insane, I think, by Obama. He's like a Trump person now. And it was this wild, long argument. Uh, Jack, I think you got to call this one off. Uh, Did, I don't think you're going to make any progress. Didn't Larry Pinkton get arrested and he was in jail for a while in the last few years? I don't know. I think so. I think in southwestern Michigan. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but, the, yeah, it was uh, looking at what Larry Pinkton... If you actually get a chance, go back and listen to that uh, analysis on Obama. He was dead right. But, oh, my uh, God, it's intense, too. But uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's so like uh, so. Jack was just back and forth fighting with uh, him about that. Uh, good luck, Jack. I don't think you're gonna work. I don't think it's gonna work. Alrighty, it's time for listener feedback. It has been sent to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell dot com. Roger suggested a guest for This Is Hell. Roger says, "Hi, like the show. May I suggest an interesting guest for the show? Morris Berman, author and historian." And very interesting guy to listen to. I think you can contact him at his blog, morrisberman.blogspot.com. Regards, Roger. I replied to Roger's email telling him Morris has been on the show in the past. However, that interview is currently not available online. We are raising money at patreon.com slash thisishell so we can rebuild our 23-year back catalog of interviews and offer them for free to everyone. However, I've CC'd producer Alex and will possibly play our Morris Berman interview this week on Patreon. So if you want to hear our interview with Morris Berman uh, from, I don't know, 2007 or 2008, uh, you have to subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. So Alex, next week's interview is our Morris Berman interview. I'm assuming that we haven't played that already, though. You don't know that off the top of your head, do you? I don't think so. Okay. We had another suggestion for a past guest. Elijah writes, you should have Thomas Frank on. Just got into the show, and I enjoyed very much. Thanks for what you do. I directed Elijah to thisishell.com, where you can find our interviews with Tom dating back to 2015. But I think Tom is about to complete work on his new book, so maybe it's time we bug him to get him back on the show, as he is absolutely one of my very, very favorite guests, my, my personal favorite guests, and I bet he's been on at least a dozen times. So maybe we'll play some Tom Frank interviews over the next few weeks on Patreon as well. Oh, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I do this every two weeks, is we post an interview for any uh, for Patreon supporters at any level. So the $4 a month, or $4 a month gets you uh, Chuck's monologue and a hand-picked interview. Uh, but every two weeks, I just post randomly some weird treasure that I found in the back catalog. And this week, I posted 
the only episode of This Is Hell, as far as I can tell. The only one. Uh, without Chuck uh, somewhere. Actually, no, you're in the show, mm-hmm. you, but you're calling from a vacation spot. Yeah. So it is an interview, compl- the, the entire show, just hosted by Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Dorchin hosted an entire show, and I asked him uh, af- ex- afterward, I was like, so how'd it go? And he was like, I never want to do that again. That is incredibly difficult to do. Talking for four hours nonstop? Yeah. How'd he do anyway? I've never listened to it. I haven't listened to it yet either. <laughs> but uh, I just want to put that out there. there. There's a lot of like weird little gems, so every two weeks I try to throw one of those out there for anyone. Yeah, so maybe listen for some Tom Frank in the future. More guest suggestions. This one from Jason. Hi, Chuck. Absolutely love the show. I've had short but pleasant conversations with your social media person as J.R. Murray in the past. Hi, social media person. You are definitely the best interviewer in media. We're lucky to have someone like you on the left. Been listening a lot lately while typing numbers into a spreadsheet for hours on end at work. It really is hell. I have a couple of guests, suggested guests, a couple of guest suggestions I have for you. Lars Lee has a very interesting interpretation of the Russian Revolution. His book is called What is to be Done in Context. Mike Davis, who we've had on the show, maybe we should put that on the list here. Tom Frank, Morris Berman, and Mike Davis. Let's play those interviews over the next few weeks. And we've got multiple Tom, Frank, and Mike Davis interviews, so maybe we'll be sharing more than just one. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jason also suggests Michelle Barrett to talk about feminism, feminism and the family. I think we actually are. I have her on the list already. And it's a big stretch, but i got to go for it. Someone from Cosmonaut Magazine, which isn't about cosmonauts. Is not really misleading to talk about marxist centrism the only good kind of centrism building a socialist party around a minimum program and what kotsky can teach socialists today thanks for considering these have a great week solidarity jason as i was saying we've had mike uh, Mike davis on plenty and you can hear our latest interview with him at this is hell.com right now but the rest are all all of your guests are very intriguing so thank you Jason, and look for us to be sharing Mike Davis interviews at patreon.com slash thisishell, but you can just go to thisishell.com right now and listen to our most recent interview with Mike. Matt P. writes, hey Chuck, I've really been enjoying Dr. Harriet Fraud's podcast, Capitalism Hits Home. She often speaks about the gendered social norms in this country that lead to toxic masculinity, violence against women, mass shootings, and neo-fascist sympathies. Even with all the great coverage you've given to these topics, I feel she would add another clarifying piece to the story of how we got here and how we might change. Thanks, Matt P. You know, that sounds really great. Toxic masculinity, violence against women, mass shootings, and neo-fascist sympathy, sympathies, that definitely checks many of the this is hell boxes for our hellish interviews but i gotta tell you unless they're writing something i don't want to sit down and listen to podcasts and then try to write down quotes and then figure out questions i come on i don't i don't want to interview podcasters come on the next two suggestions are both great because they're both about labor and we want to do more stuff on work here on the show hi chuck long time first time it would be great to talk to claire stapleton and meredith whitaker about labor organizing in tech and the growing relationships among the tech industry the surveillance state and the military industrial complex they were organizers of the google women's walkout and were retaliated against as a result meredith is also the head of a group called a I Now, which publishes cutting-edge research at the intersection of AI and social issues at AINowInstitute.org. Love the show. Say hi to the possibly feral cat for me. All right, I will. 
Hi, Mel. But a guest suggestion, a great guest suggestion, we love whistleblowers. That leads uh, perfectly into Andy, who also has a guest suggestion. Andy writes, hey, Chuck and Alex, thought I would recommend another recent author and book, Emily Gundelsberger, author of the new Little Brown and Company title, On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. As an American who has been driven insane by low-wage work and stress, I'm sure more than a few in your audience may feel the same. She isn't afraid to swear either, so be effing warned. I hear you'll be a guest on the Michael Brooks show when it is in Chicago, his live show. Glad to hear it. One of these days I really need to get to Chicago. Great guest suggestion, Andy. Uh, Low-wage work drove me insane. Then I started this no-wage work thing called radio, and somehow it made me happier. So I definitely want to look into Emily's writing, and man, Michael Brooks must really know how to promote, because I haven't done much to promote this event yet on uh, August 24th at Lincoln Hall, and we've had quite a few listeners contact me to say how excited they are that I will be part of that live show. So again, that's on Saturday, August 24th at Lincoln Hall. I'll be on something called the Michael Brooks Show. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I wish I did know, but I... I don't know. That's listener feedback for right now. This week's question from hell is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? What's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable glo- uh, global temperatures? Listen during our listen after our next guest to all of the responses and to find out if you've won this week's gift prize, whatever you want to call it, is the new This Is Hell trucker cap, which is part of the new pieces of merchandise that will be available at our listener appreciation party on Saturday, July 27th, next Saturday. Again, the question from Hell is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen, following our guest to see if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll dig deep into the fight between advocates for public land and those who want to exploit them and sell them off. And our last guest this week will discuss fugitivity and why blackness is trouble, is lawlessness, which makes sense when you realize how unjust the law is that is imposed and forced upon black lives. During the moment of truth, Jeff tests our ornithological knowledge. I have no idea what that means, but apparently we'll be finding out shortly. We'll also have what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for our subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We uh, might get back into listener feedback. We'll keep reminding you of our anniversary party that's coming up. Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell. Thank some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We love our public lands here in the States. So what explains ongoing attempts to privatize the land in order to sell them off and exploit their resources? Here to help us understand the fight over private land, political science and environmental studies scholar Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer. Welcome to This is Hell. Well, thank you. 
It's great to, to be here. It's great to have you on the show, sir. Uh, this is Listener Appreciation Month, and as listener Brian suggested Stephen as a guest, Brian will be receiving our special secret mystery prize that we are giving to everyone who suggested a month, uh, guest this month that actually appeared on our show. Brian wrote to us about Stephen. Thanks so much for all your work on The Magnificent This Is Hell. I'm writing to pitch an inter- interview with a dear friend who recently wrote A Passionate Defense of Our Public Lands, which was published by Temple University Press. He's a professor of political science at Edgewood College in Madison, but he grew up in the Chicago area and is a graduate of Loyola. So many local connections. It's a great book, and he's a terrific conversationalist, so I'd imagine it would be a terrific interview. I have an extra copy. If you'd like to have it, I can drop it off at your headquarters over on Devon. Thanks for your consideration. Longtime fan, Brian. Do you know this Brian that I'm talking oh, about? what a green listener he is. Yes. Okay. Well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's from the neighborhood. Hey, yeah, really great guy. Exactly. He's been listening to the show forever, so I really appreciate it, Brian. Uh, so you write that a good chunk of the credit for you spending most of your life seeking out, enjoying, longing for teaching about, reading about, studying, contemplating, and advocating for the wild land, a good chunk of the credit must go to the visionary planners and civic leaders who had the bold foresight and civic devotion to establish the Forest Preserve District of Cook County here in Illinois in 1916, the same year when the National Park Service was created. How much pressure was there on the city, or the nation for that matter, from private interests who did not want to make lands public? Well, it's been uh, a constant, and I'm actually not a historian of the Cook County Forest Preserves, but I could imagine, like with our federal lands, that there was um, eyebrows raised when, when the proposal went up to, to protect you know, those corridors of, of land along the Chicago and Des Plaines River and, and um, further eyebrows were probably raised when large chunks of land in the south uh, part of Cook County was, was bought up in the 40s and 50s and uh, the areas around um, along I-90 uh, that were added to the system. Um, it actually probably has not been quite as controversial because there is such a, a dearth of public land in, in Illinois as compared to other states and Illinoisians and Midwesterners in general really appreciate their public land because it's it's a, a fairly rare commodity. Um, but in general, uh, public land gives libertarians and and Ayn Rand types uh, a lot of grief. Thirty seven percent of America is in in one jurisdiction or another public, from federal to county to city parks, and. Uh, that drives them absolutely crazy that such a big chunk of our of our you know uh, uh, real estate in America is uh, owned. It's a commons. It's owned by everyone, um, and 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 so our history is one of these cycles of of um, uh, resistance and 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 politically plotting to to alleviate us of those public lands at, at different times in different ways in different places um, but it's kind of a constant cycle it's a constant cycle but is do you see any patterns within that constant cycle do these public lands get threatened more when republicans are in charge when democrats are more in charge actually um we we see the the cycle so I'm going to switch now to uh, talking about our federal lands, which make up about two-thirds of that, of that 37%. Um, around 28% of all of the United States is federal land. And um, when we have had uh, Democratic uh, uh, 
administrations, the Clinton administration, Obama, Carter, back in the 70s, we tend to see um, a lot more resistance out West. There's um, a, a lot of the, of the privatization advocates and Koch brother types and Alec, Alec uh, uh, acolytes. They they hook up with uh, local local groups uh, representing ranchers and and uh, others who use who use public lands, um, and and they they. Uh, they go through these periods of, um, you know, kind of demonizing government uh, management and demonizing the fact that, you know, distant bureaucrats in Washington D.C. are controlling our our lands. Um, and these these tend to cycle up. So we saw, for example, the Bundy uh, occupation of the Melter Wildlife Refuge in in this is an armed occupation of of, of militia men essentially. Um, and and when Republicans uh, because they loosen up control of the public lands, and essentially they achieve an almost de facto privatization by by um, uh, opening up pub- public lands to much easier, you know, fracking and and mining and logging. It kind of it's like a pressure valve, and it, it releases some of the pressure, and um, things tend to quiet down. So under Bush, now under Trump, um, those movements are still there, but kind of some of the steam comes off. So, for example, in Congress under Obama, we saw, and, and the book talks quite a bit about um, these kind of waves of legislation, really radical stuff to privatize uh, big chunks of our national forests, uh, BLM lands, to um, to strip the president of any ability to, to protect public lands by executive order to create national monuments, which we've had since Teddy Roosevelt. Um, you've seen um, attempts to uh, uh, transfer wholesale everything but maybe the, the Crown Jewel National Parks to the states that they're in, which would be, for lots of reasons, a disaster in Western states. Um, and then now that Trump's president, that's kind of slowed down or stopped. Now it's come to a screeching halt now that the Democrats control the House of Representatives. But even before then, um, that kind of stuff kind of petered out. So uh, that's kind of your broad cycle. Uh, we saw it in the 40s after World War II, an attempt to transfer land. We saw attempts in um, the 1970s and 80s under Reagan with the Sagebrush Rebellion. And so it's a long cycle. Um, and, and I started the book in 2015, kind of at the peak of of all of this um, legislation, some of which actually passed the House of Representatives. Um, this stuff... Uh, it, 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 it was far along, and one version of transfer actually passed both houses of Congress, uh, and, and, and so it, it was a real threat. We'll get to that uh, concept of uh, transfer in just a moment. But um, you also write that those who would privatize public land often scornfully dismiss as rent seekers those who hike, hunt, pick mushrooms, or kayak on public land, contending that they want to push the costs of their personal preferences onto everyone else. I strongly challenge that notion, perhaps as a way of engaging in what I like to think of as rent paying, a way of attending to my debt for this irreplaceable inheritance that I, as an American citizen, have had bestowed upon me. How do you pay rent to public land? Well, you know, that's a, a, a libertarian concept, <laughs> um, this, this rent-seeking. Um, and, and I pay the rent uh, in, in terms of, of my, my um, 
scholarship and activism, I suppose, and to try to use empirical evidence and, our, and, and theoretical argumentation to show just how much this land is actually worth and to try to dismantle the, the libertarian frameworks of analysis around public land. Um, and so that's the main way that I do that. Other people pay their rent by blocking logging roads and other people by, by being environmental lawyers and, and, and suing, um, suing government agencies uh, when, when they violate federal environmental law. And so there's lots of ways to do that. So uh, on transfer, you write that although much of the attention in the early part of the Trump administration had been on national monuments and the deregulation of land use, the movement to transfer the federal lands to the states still simmers in the background. Should a comprehensive land transfer bill somehow come to pass Congress, it would be only the start of a messy, complicated, and likely ferocious political conflict involving fusillades of lawsuits, including constitutional challenges, pitched battles over exactly which lands could be transferred, and the even greater complications presented by the very nature of federalism itself. So energy or environment and energy news reported this week, uh, Montana State Senator Jennifer Fielder ticks through, or she's a Republican, ticks through her well-worn list of incentives for land management, citing clean air and water, as well as success for recreation and sportsmen. She sounds like many other advocates for public lands, but there's one key difference. Fielder wants Congress to turn over control of vast swaths of federal acreage to their respective states. And they quote her saying, who knows and cares about the lands here in the West more than the people who work and play and raise their families right here in the West. It's time to free our lands from federal bureau crazy people. They also report that Fielder uh, criticizing what she sees as the federal government's hands-off management style and asserting that states are better positioned to oversee lands with their border, within their borders. She says, we can afford to keep the public lands public and to manage them better. Who is best suited for protecting and preserving as well as managing public land, the state or federal government, in your opinion? Well, it depends on the state, but uh, out west, it's almost definitely the federal government, um, and that's where the bulk of the federal land is. And for privatizers, it's kind of been like a game of whack-a-mole. They, they, they will go with whatever argument uh, gains traction. And pure privatization is kind of a non-starter with the, with the mass public. It's a really hard argument for them to make. And um, they've been trying over and over and over, but they haven't gotten very far. Uh, and, and so this notion of transfer, which started in the 70s with the so-called Sagebrush Rebellion, is, in my opinion... It's a kind of a two-step privatization. Um, so state lands out west, and this is, I want to state, really different than state lands in, say, Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois and Vermont and New York. Those kind of are, are um, mirrors of the federal system. But out west, what public land is owned by states tends to have been granted. It's kind of complicated, and I don't want to get into the details, but it was granted at statehood to support the school system. So um, they're called state trust lands. And the idea was that, you know, way back in the 1800s, you'd graze cattle or cut, cut timber, and, and then you'd sell that. Or you'd take that revenue, and you would plow it into your, your one-room schoolhouse back in the 1800s. And now that makes up a, a very tiny portion of school budgets, but it's, the system still exists. So that land is really different than public land, say, you know, Yosemite National Park or, or Gallatin National Forest. It's really different. This land is like 
constitutionally obligated to produce revenue. And so state lands out west are worked super hard. Um, they tend to be logged and fracked and mined, you know, uh, to an extent uh, you, you, federal lands sometimes are as well. And there's a lot of controversy about how federal lands are managed and treated, and it's not very good. But state lands, you know, take it to the max out west. And um, so the model that she's talking about there, it sounds wonderful, local control, et cetera. But in reality, it is predicated on that state trust model, which is the land would be uh, required to, um, to absolutely produce max revenue. Utah did a study because Utah is the most aggressive state for transferring federal lands to itself is a really kind of self-serving demand. You know, we demand that you give us this without compensation. Um, and they, they did a study, and the study showed that oil, because it's very expensive uh, for a state to maintain this land, and so there was a concern that, you know, do we have enough revenue to manage all the tens and tens and tens of millions of acres of federal land in our border? The price of oil would have to be above $100 a barrel, sustainably, and they would have to like max out production everywhere oil existed to raise enough revenue in, in Utah, which doesn't, um, that's the, kind of the main resource production there, to, to make it work. So there'd be oil derricks, you know, pretty much everywhere <laughs> on, you know, what is Arches National Park. Um, and so uh, it's, and, and here's one other point about uh, transfer. The way state trust plants work is that one of the things you are allowed to do uh, to raise the money for your school systems or raise the money for revenue, which you're required to do, is sell off the land. That's a potential use. Um, and so here's where you get to the two-step process. Um, if federal lands were uh, transferred to the states, then uh, there'd be nothing to stop in a decade, two decades, three decades. There'd be nothing to stop Idaho or Arizona or Utah from every year cutting off a little corner and raising some revenue that way, or if there's a budget deficit or, or some issue, you know, uh, unrelated to public lands, you know, raise a little revenue that way. Um, it, there's no surprise that, that those who are behind this transfer idea, like State Senator Fielding, are um, uh, the same people who argue for privatization. Or they've just you know, switched their argument to a more subtle one that plays better. Um, so, so transfer uh, is, is a really dangerous idea because it sounds plausible on the surface, but you dig a little deeper and you see that it's just a, a longer road to privatization. And it's not that the locals couldn't do if they were resourced uh, the management and keep the public lands public and make them stay the way that they are it's just they simply don't have the resources so it's yeah most states don't don't have the resources necessary um look uh yellowstone has visitors from not just i I was there not long ago not just from around the country but from around the world it seemed like every fourth visitor was visiting from china these are uh global treasures there's no way on earth that wyoming with 400,000 people could maintain that infrastructure. It's, it's a national endeavor. It's a national resource, and it needs to be owned and managed by all of us, for all of us, uh, and that's the only scale that it makes any sense. And one quick argument uh, uh, regarding um, this idea that the locals know best and the locals need to control, there's this myth that Western 
federal land out west, uh, a myth that is controlled from the distant, remote Washington, D.C. bureaucrats. And there, there's this whole kind of elaborate construction around that. In reality, there's almost no part of the federal bureaucracy that's more uh, decentralized, down to you know ranger districts and watersheds and grazing districts. Uh, every one of those places is decentralized, um, has decentralized decision-making. And in fact, there's a criticism the opposite way, that local people have too much uh, input, that these are everybody's land, whether you live in Puerto Rico or Florida or, or you know, Vermont, we all have claim to this public land in that uh, too much, the federal managers give a little too much uh, uh, voice and, and input and preference and privilege to the local actors, the ranchers, etc. So politics is messy. Um, you know, that, that uh, libertarians look at that and say, you know, this is terrible and unjust, and we should solve the problem by making a private and, and you know, problem solved. Um, if you believe in democracy, you have a tolerance for the conflict and the back and forth and the, um, the, 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 the kind of um, deliberation that takes place, you know, um, as environmentalists and resource users and snowmobilers and all the different stakeholders kind of dive in and fight over these resources. Um, it's messy. It's unfortunate. Sometimes the wrong choices are made, in my environmentalist opinion, but it's, it's, it's at least open. It's, it's way more open than, you know, a no trespassing sign and this is mine, go away. You write that public lands spread their wealth and value far and wide and groups that have come to depend on them, such as the outdoor industry, gateway communities, tourism-related industries, local chambers of commerce, outfitters and guides, need to become loud advocates in this coalition as well. As it stands now, no family gets in their car in Ohio and drives to a management unit of Montana State Trust land for a two-week vacation. And if this is the fate of federal land, then many livelihoods will be endangered. Do public land then spread their wealth far and wide and in ways that people don't realize or recognize? What are those, oh. some of the ways in which public lands are good for local economies that the public may not realize? Um, absolutely. This was kind of the central idea of the book. And one of the main chapters is, is, you know, I divide the book essentially into three arguments, the biological case, which hopefully we'll get to, uh, the economic case and the political case. So the, the political case is essentially that this is open and democratic and it represents America's collective values. Um, the, the economic case is that libertarians make this argument. It's super simplistic. Um, essentially, this simple equation. How much do we spend on this, which is, uh, as, I, as I point out in the book, around $11.5 billion goes towards managing one third of uh, America's land, okay? I look at that in the context of the federal budget, and I see bargain. I see it should probably be tripled. Um, but, but libertarians look at that, and they say, you know, okay, what's going in, what's, what's coming out? And so it's just a simple, uh, uh, does this pay for itself kind of measure, which is absurd if you would, were to take that idea and attach it to fire departments, public schools, libraries, you know, no public service runs that way. Like, does the library make as much as it costs to run? Well, no, it's a public good, and we come together and pay our taxes to support this public good. So that's the framework. They say public lands are a money trap, and they're draining our wealth, and, you know, we have a deficit, we can't afford this. By the way, I I point out in the book, um, 
what debt $11 billion looks like compared to other expenditures. We would spend $12 billion Keep in 2006, oh. and we spent double that, $20 billion, um, on air conditioning for our bases in Iraq in one year. So double that for air conditioning bases uh, versus managing one-third of the terrestrial wealth of the United wow. States. So uh, that's my view on this. But if you take their argument that the land isn't, you know, essentially for every 10 or so dollars that you spend uh, on, on managing public land, you get a dollar in revenue. And that's from oil leases and coal leases and selling the timber that you cut from our national forest and things like that. Um, entrance fees to the national parks, $25 getting to Yellowstone. 35 what am I saying? Um, and so uh, that is an outrageously, torturously narrow way to look at this. And so what I set out to do in the book was to expand the, 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 the view, to, to really look more deeply at uh, what are these lands really worth and what are they really doing? And you can do this two ways. And one way is to use conventional economics. So, for example... Uh, economists everywhere use this notion of return on investment. If you're going to make an investment in something in a, in a certain amount of time, what do you get back uh, for your investment? Well, the Trust for Public Land's done a series of exhaustive studies on public land, and they have found um, that the lowest return on investment for acquiring, so if the, if the government goes and buys, you know, let's say the Cook County Forest Reserve buys a new chunk of land um, out by Barrington or something, um, what what will that cost, and what will what will be the return on investment from more tourism, more higher property values, um, uh, uh, you know, national parks? Uh, there's all these gateway community effects and um, economic development effects. Um, and the lowest they found was four to one that there was a, a return on investment of four dollars. So for every one dollar of acquisition, you get four dollars back. And some uh, places and jurisdictions they looked at were as as high as um, uh, 10, 10 to 1. And then critics say, well, that's just buying it. What about operating it? Every year you got to pay salaries and operate this place. Well, they did a series of studies. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service economists did a series of studies what it costs to operate public land. And they found almost exactly the same ratios uh, between 7 to 1 and 4 to 1. So for every dollar spent in running the place, you get 4 to $7 or so back. Um, uh, in, in economic benefit. We, we can also see just uh, Headwaters Economics is a think tank out in Bozeman, Montana, and they've done extensive studies about um, the counties out west that have a lot of public land versus those that have very little. And by almost every measure, you could see the economic growth effects of having abundant public land. It's, a, it's an amenity uh, that draws people. And the counties with over 30% of the acreage in public land are growing faster, they uh, have greater job growth, they have more um, uh, income, a higher income. Uh, and, and so by these, by these standard measures that any economist would recognize, public lands um, create wealth that goes unrecognized by a lot of traditional mainstream classical economists who are just focusing on what, what revenue comes directly off the land from selling the resources that are on the land. Um, but we know there is so much more uh, in, 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 um, in, in what these lands provide to not only the local communities, but even regional communities. 
Then the other argument is um, uh, about uh, something much broader and much wider, and that is what environmental economists are calling ecosystem services. And, and this kind of blows the, the lid off the whole measure. <laughs> ecosystem services are the, thing nature, are the things that nature does for us that markets do not recognize, do not pay attention to, do not calculate. The, in fact, they call them free goods. Um, but they're anything but free, because if you don't have them, you have to figure out a way to get them. Um, some of them, like clean water, you know, we could directly measure. If, if you don't have clean water coming from aquifers in, um, in a national forest or some public land, uh, then you're going to have to build some kind of water treatment facility or desalinization plant or something like that. Um, if you don't have wetlands, like along the Chicago and Des Plaines rivers that are soaking up all of this excess rain, um, you're going to have to do build flood flood control uh, systems. Um, you're going to have to sustain much more damage. We can, you know, it's a counterfactual. I don't know how much damage was avoided because the forest preserves along the Chicago and Des Plaines River are soaking up all these rains, you know, that, that have been coming this summer. But I know it's hundreds of millions of dollars probably of, of basements that didn't flood. I, I, Chicago is low enough in a built-in swamp that we get plenty of flooding anyway, but um, it would be probably considerably worse if we did not have public land strategically located in these river corridors. Um, and that was the ecosystem services. They are the things that provide, um, well, economists have tried to figure out and pinpoint what they provide. Uh, Robert Costanza has estimated, and this is a crazy back-of-the-envelope probably very inaccurate estimate, but he estimates $42 trillion a year in ecosystem services the planet spins off for us. Um, things like carbon sequestration, water filtration, water retention, pollination services. Um, and now, of course, land could be private and produce ecosystem services as well. And the point I try to make is that public land with functioning biodiverse ecosystems does it better, does it more abundantly. Look, a, a, a wetland that is protected as a wetland will have far greater, it'll churn out far greater ecosystem services than a wetland that is sold and becomes a housing subdivision. Um, and so that private land, agricultural land, tends to be much weaker in churning out ecosystem services. Once you figure those into the calculation, then, you know, there's, there's no contest. <laughs> that $11 billion we spend to manage this land becomes a pittance because the land's worth trillions of dollars. And in the book, I try to pinpoint some of the studies that have been done, some at a macro level, some at a micro level, um, you know, what, what national forests are worth, uh, uh, water, uh, um, uh, water resources on national forests. It's, it's in the many billions of dollars. Um, studies about, um, you know, various, uh, let's see, I have here, uh, uh, the forests, uh, what are the ecosystem services of um, public and private forests in Texas, $92 billion a year. Um, it, it, one study looked at uh, a half a million acre federal watershed in, um, uh, outside of Seattle in the Skykomish uh, watershed, which is in um, a national, mostly in a national forest outside uh, to the east of Seattle. And we're talking about how much ecosystem services 
spin off of federal land uh, per year. But they were looking in this study at what is the asset worth. And um, so I'm not an economist, but I guess economists use this kind of standard discount rate for if you, you know, have a car, a house, a lawnmower, some, some kind of asset, and it you know, has a, a certain loss of value as time goes on. Well, nature doesn't really have that, right? A, a functioning ecosystem doesn't have a, a d- asset depreciation. It's, it's, it's stable. It, it, it should work because it's, it's nature, right? So if you, um, if you use a, a kind of a standard model for measuring its value, uh, it was somewhere between 6 and $80 billion. Now, this is in its infancy, this ecosystem service measurement. Um, and so uh, there's huge ranges that, that economists are, are coming to. And critics say, well, that just shows it's nonsense. You're just pulling stuff out of a hat. Well, not really. Um, they're doing their best. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it's not, it's not worth zero. And that's what we have all been uh, valuing it uh, in the past. That's what classical economics and, and, and free market economics values at zero. I know for a fact it's somewhere between 6 and $80 billion, that, that watershed. Um, and if you take out the discount rate, which I think is realistic, it's 24 to $334 billion. So the mid-range of that is $180 billion uh, asset value. That's just one half-million-acre watershed. Um, and so that's just kind of a whole new ballgame. We start thinking of these, these public land assets like that in terms of all the things of value, clean water, storing carbon, things like that, intact ecosystems uh, that spin off of these public assets um, that totally changes the equation. Right. And, but you point out that under the Trump administration, as you say, the very first day of the 115th Congress in January 2017, the House inserted a change into the budget rules framework for the coming session. Under the old Congressional Budget Office accounting rules, budget calculations for any transfer or sale of federal land had to include the cost to the Department of the Treasury of lost revenue from fees and sales or royalties from extractive activities. Under the new rule, giving away federal land will incur no cost on the balance balance sheets, and thus losing them will have no officially recognized financial impact. What is purposely lost in that decision-making process then when the... that rule was just madness. I mean, we're talking about ecosystem services. This is so far beyond recognizing that. This was so radical that it was saying, we're not even going to recognize the old-fashioned revenue, the logging and mining and the, 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 the money that we get from selling because we can't justify privatization or transfer any other way. You know, if we're going to give Utah federal lands, there would probably be, you know, some eyebrows raised. Well, you're giving them something of all this value if, if we transfer things. or um, And so you had to make it worth zero in order to justify um, that, that kind of transfers. That, that was when the, uh, the new government, the new Congress was really feeling its oats, and, it, and some, some in Congress felt it was like it was showtime and it was time to plow through this stuff. What happened was really gratifying, which was uh, sportsmen and in, in Utah, it's the sportsmen who are listened to, not the environmentalists. The state legislature there, you know, and, and the congressional delegation from Utah doesn't doesn't care what the Sierra Club thinks, but they do care what uh, uh, hunters and outdoorsmen and sportsmen and fishermen think. And they were really effectively organized and pushed back super hard. And that was kind of the first indication that this this 
was going to be a lot harder and more controversial than they thought it was going to be. Um, and, and by the way, the, the new Congress post-2018, of course, dismantled that. Every new Congress has its own new budget assumptions that come in, and that's no longer in operation. You mentioned the continuing mobilization of a seething movement of opposition in parts of the rural West to public land. These movements share the dubious notion that any federal ownership of land is a constitutionally prohibited activity, an idea that only recently has been mainstreamed. Numerous court rulings and most serious legal analysis find in the Constitution's property clause clear and indisputable constitutional authority for the federal government to own and control land, but opponents insist through a rather tortured interpretation that the Constitution obligates the federal government to surrender all public land to the states. So I'm going to ask you about the, you know, the uh, biological defense in a little bit. We've been talking about the economic and the political defense. Uh, This is more, I mean, I guess this could fall under politics, but this is more a legal sense. You also, you say this uh, is increasingly going uh, mainstream. What explains it going mainstream when it seems to be shot down by courts at every turn? Well, it's a crackpot idea. It's gone mainstream because Republican legislators uh, are, are paying attention to it, and, um, and that's what's giving it a, a sense of legitimacy that it really does not deserve. It, first, I want to step back and say, you know, there, there is movements out west uh, of, of intense, intense opposition. Um, the, the whole you saw that when when the Bundy uh, occupation happened, um, and, and the militia at the original Bundy showdown in Nevada when they came to protect Mr. Bundy's cattle that were being confiscated because he refused to pay his his um, grazing his very low and reasonable grazing fees. Um, but that kind of overstates the support. Um, natural resource uh, people who work in the natural resource industries make up about 2% of the population. Many of them are not radical at all, but they feel they get a fair shake. Um, overall, public surveys show Westerners, um, like all Americans, are deeply supportive of their public land. So I don't, I don't want to present this as, um, you know, this, this uh, super mainstream growing idea. But there is a very loud and very well organized um, and, and, and very vocal, uh, and, and has been for a long time, um, core of, of people out West. What's mainstreamed it is that they have the ear of Western Republican legislatures and parties, um, and that's what's given these fairly radical ideas um, uh, kind of mainstream status. It's as clear as, as, you know, the nose on your face that the federal government in the Constitution can own land. And they look at that same Constitution that most legal scholars look at, and they say, oh, no, and they have this kind of long, twisted interpretation of um, parsing words and parsing meanings and, and uh, claiming, you know, originalist intent uh, that, that there's no such power. Um, in fact, most of the state, the bills that created, you know, the statehood bills that gave statehood to states like Utah, etc., they specifically make the state, at the time that the state got statehood, to divest itself of all claims to federal land. You know, and, and so that shows at the time the federal government knew full well, you know, that what it, it had this land and what it was doing was constitutional and this was something of value and, um, and, and Utah agreed to those terms. 
Um, so this is kind of a, a legal grasping at straws. Now, normally I would scoff and say that's just ridiculous. You know, um, that's not going to go anywhere. And, and so far it hasn't. What keeps me up at night is the future composition of the courts. Um, we are beginning to see in other areas uh, of, of jurisprudence. This is not my, my I'm, I'm not a legal theorist, but um, I, I, I know enough to know that long settled, long kind of um, uh, agreed upon areas of law are being thrown up for grabs by this kind of federalist society, new breed of judges. And I could foresee in the future, uh, the judiciary is already about 20, 20% Trump appointed. Um, you know, especially if there's a second term, I could see a critical mass being breached where a large chunk of the federal judiciary, and I cannot stress how important the federal judiciary has been to protecting environmental uh, laws and protecting public land and protecting this notion. Um, again and again and again, it's been the courts that have pushed back against um, radical ideas from legislatures. And um, what keeps me up at night is is this fear that um, that's, that protection is going to go away. And even the most crackpot legal theory is going to suddenly gain uh, currency. So uh, <clears throat> you not only have uh, economic and political defenses for public land, you also mentioned how you have a biological defense for a public land. I want you to share that with our listeners. But the thing that I also want you to answer within that is, does climate change make that biological defense any more important than it is? Absolutely. I mean, climate change is going to be very rough (laughs) on all land, public and private, and everyone who lives on the land. Um, But I think um, having a robust system of public land is is so important in the era we're going into for um, wildlife and plant communities to be able to to uh, have mobility uh, corridors, to have, you know, Yellowstone is going to be different. It's going to be devastated in a lot of ways. But to have the 16 million acres uh, uh, greater Yellowstone ecosystem of national forests, national parks, um, BLM land, uh, and then a corridor through the Rockies leading almost up to Glacier and the Canadian border, that populations can move, adjust, um, reestablish is vital not to mention the sequestration uh, that happens of carbon on public land and and the much older, bigger, more abundant forests on public land. Um, Biologists know that forests are are one of nature's, besides oceans, one of the most important storage um, vehicles for for carbon, you know, especially trees that live 100, 200 years. That becomes a, a major sink of carbon. And... Uh, studies have shown that public forests uh, store way more carbon than than private forests, and public land um, per acre stores way more carbon than private private land. So, even though public lands will be affected and perhaps ravaged by wildfires and extinctions, um, it's unavoidable. Um, their their presence, uh, uh, kind of at a big scale, provides well more abundant ecosystem services that lead to resilience and resilience will be the key in a climate change world and and also the the, the possibility for for mobility so let me get back to kind of the main argument libertarians make is essentially you could boil it down to the saying 
nobody ever washes a rent-a-car. <laughs> they have this idea embodied in the famous tragedy of the commons notion that if uh, everyone owns something, no one really owns it because you don't have exclusivity. That's a really important principle in, in classical economics is that you have control over something, can sell it, exchange it, um, and, and, and you have kind of sovereign control over a resource, over property. Because you, uh, because it is, it is uh, uh, not exclusive and also, um, I think the term is rival, uh, it's, it's non, I'm getting far afield, I'm, I'm not a trained economist, but this idea that uh, what you enjoy from public land needs to go in your pocket, stay under your control. And so public land violates both notions in that um, you can't solely own it and be sovereign over it, and you don't get all the benefits. If you own a farm and you grow corn and you sell your corn, the, research, the, the revenue goes in your pocket. Whereas on public land, yeah, you kind of own it, but you own it with everyone else and its benefits are diffuse and they spread to everyone else. And it spreads to the tourists from Europe who comes and takes a trip to Yellowstone and doesn't even support the public lands. Everyone benefits from it, right? So it's a classic public good. Um, and so they would argue that because no one has responsibility and no one's livelihood is directly dependent on it, which is nonsense, but that's what they argue, uh, no one really takes care of it. That care and concern and uh, stewardship come from ownership and accountability. I'm a farmer. I'm a logger. My well-being, my family's, you know, food on the table, et cetera, et cetera, all depend on me taking care of and stewarding this resource. Um, therefore, I will take care of it. And that makes a certain textbook sense, but in the real world, it completely falls apart, and it ignores you know, the fact that it's not old McDonald owning the farm. It's a giant CAFO, you know, 10 billion chicken <laughs> operation, or it's a, it's a, uh, an investment, you know, a hedge fund that owns this forest and only wants to, you know, um, liquidate its assets and, and, and pour them into, uh, you know, stocks that are earning more or whatever. Um, and so th that's a breathtaking claim that private land um, is better taken care of biologically. It's in better shape and that... Um, public ownership, no one's accountable, no one's minding the store, uh, the bureaucrats don't really have to face any accountability, uh, they're building empires, and, and it all just kind of falls apart. And then they make these cherry-picked arguments. And believe me, you can find lots of examples of how public management has failed and is harming the resources. Uh, I, I spend my career studying this stuff. <laughs> um, however, I know also for a fact that th this this notion that private land is in better shape than public land is absolute nonsense. And it was really low-hanging fruit to gather the empirical evidence to show that it was nonsense. So what I do is, you know, I come up with various measures, what, you know, of biodiversity. That's kind of the main point here is that uh, things, uh, it, it, it's kind of the main criteria, how biodiverse is the land and ecosystems uh, as a sign of, of how healthy it is. So that's my main uh, indicator of, of ecological health. And in every measure from um, uh, presence of rare species, presence of rare landscapes, for example, our neighbor, Michigan, well, my neighbor in Wisconsin, I guess it's Illinois, too, Michigan, uh, it has, uh, it's about 30, 20% uh, publicly owned the land in Michigan. And yet 75% of all freshwater dunes are public. Why is that? Well, it's, it's obvious that 
dunes are nice to build in and, and people want to have, you know, uh, a McMansion on a dune. And so we have uh, only pretty much uh, freshwater functioning dune ecosystems. To have that, it has to be public. In, in Wisconsin, in Illinois, almost every acre of uh, savanna, oak savanna, which is a, a historically prompt, uh, dominant landform, but is now globally endangered, something like one-tenth of one percent of all extant savanna remains, um, almost every acre in Wisconsin is on public land. And, and, and those are incredibly rich ecosystems. So everything I looked at, uh, every measure I looked at, the public lands outperformed private lands. Forest fragmentation. Um, University of Wisconsin has done these incredible studies uh, using satellite photographs of like road penetration. And I explain in the book how fragmentation is the number one enemy of biodiversity. It introduces all kinds of negative um, effects on functioning ecosystems. When you break up ecosystems into little tiny fragments, little islands broken up by roads, you get invasive species, you get you know, all kinds of uh, uh, problems. And uh, looking at these satellite photos, you can see uh, that the remaining chunks of un, uh, unfragmented forest tend to be on public land. The remaining old-growth forests, which are the most biodiverse kind of uh, 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 communities, forest communities, tend to be on public lands. And so I'm not saying public lands are uh, super well-managed because they're often not. It depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on whether it's a wilderness area or a national park or a national forest. It depends on a lot of things. But I can look at the data and say, as a whole, if you're interested in biodiversity, it disproportionately is found on public land and disproportionately uh, is protected by public land. And and that is um, that is where we we. Uh, we, we find the, the data so convincing. We are speaking with political science and environmental studies scholar Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer. It's Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, and listener Brian suggested Stephen as a guest, so he will be getting our secret mystery prize in the mail in the very near future. We want to thank Brian for suggesting Stephen as a guest. One last question for you, Stephen, and our sure. final guest for all, a final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to just simply hate your response. You write, if public land's greatest asset is the fact they are treasured by the public, then perhaps one of the more serious long-term threats would be if that support were to ever turn into indifference. And you mentioned one way that the that could turn into indifference and does is through race. You explain analysis attempting to explain this demographic disconnect, identify barriers ranging from geographic to economic to cultural. Yet one thing is clear, an undeniable racial construction around outdoor recreation and federal parklands strongly sends the message that this is all a white activity, most properly done by white people. This notion gets reinforced in countless ways, from past discrimination to advertising to the racial makeup of park rangers to the stories that are told about public lands and their heroes in popular culture, books, movies, and classrooms. How can environmentalism shake its white elitist label that is in place due to capitalism, due to poverty? How can environmentalism address the barrier of poverty that may make nature seem to be a site of white privilege. That's that's a great question, and um, there's there's a, a lot of people that have been wrestling with that. And I um, 
I encourage people to read uh, the the book. Um, uh, uh, gosh, <laughs> the name is escaping me. Um, black uh, white spaces, black faces, something like that. It's in the book, um, which which really wrestles with with all of these questions of race and um, and the outdoors. And it's absolutely true that this has uh, kind of a white elitist uh, uh, aspect to it. Uh, I would ultimately, this is all of our land. It's a commons, and so I put it in the same category as libraries and schools, and it spews off of it incredible benefits for all human beings. Um, and yes, some of my arguments about, oh, this supports the outdoors industry and this and that, uh, they're going to be unconvincing to, to uh, struggling you know, uh, people. However, at the base of it, this is about the functioning of our planet and who controls the resources. And right now, the resources are controlled imperfectly, but they're controlled by everyone in semi, at least semi-democratic processes, and the benefits accrue theoretically to everyone. And these are really important ecosystem services. So I think we need to do a better job explaining, uh, even if you never set foot in these places, the important things, you know, the water turns on in New York City when you turn on the tap because of the Catskills, uh, 400,000 acres of, of city-owned uh, old-growth forest uh, where the rain falls on those forests and comes down aqueducts and the water comes down in the Bronx. So um, that's, that's important to all of us. Stephen, I can't uh, tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. This has been really fantastic. Your book is really enjoyable. I want to thank Brian again for suggesting you as a guest. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and click on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com. And then click on support. You can see all of our different swag items there at our site. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like religious commitment to This Is Hell by Adrienne. And thanks to Kay, who wants one of our This Is Hell stainless steel camping mugs, which will be available at the party next week, Saturday, December 27th. December. Saturday, July 27th. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. It's our fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show. This is art, so join us next week beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's, 2251 West Devon. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, the Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag, go to thisishell.com, click on support. Black lives are in trouble the moment they leave the womb. Unjust laws dictate the way black Americans live, forcing blackness into criminality. And as our next guest describes, fugitivity. We'll learn all about fugitivity in a few when we talk to Marquise Bay, author of Them Goon Rules, fugitive essays on black radical feminism in May. Northwestern University announced that it had brought Marquise on board as an assistant professor. Marquise's focus is on black feminist theorizing transgender studies, critical theory, and contemporary uh, African-American literature. In Northwestern's announcement of Marquise's hiring, they state that he will be offering courses in black political and social life as well as black vernacular as a theoretical praxis. Marquise has other pedagogical interests in black queer studies, black feminist theory, the genre of the essay, 
and history of racial radical politics. So if you are a student up here at Northwestern, I would suggest you sign up for Marquise's classes in the fall. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and plenty have so far. We currently have a 4.9 rating out of a possible 5 because some nut thinks that we're actually getting money from Vladimir Putin, and God, I wish we were. He doesn't even sign up for our $4 Patreon thing, jerk. This week, Nick gave us five stars and wrote, telling it like it is, but shouldn't be. This is how diagnoses the problems and prescribes the solutions for society's ills, if only we wouldn't skip our daily doses. We also got five stars from Timothy, who says, clear and accurate perspective on so many issues, it's refreshing. You, too, can go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do, I'll read your comment on the air. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? What's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? All replies, Red on air right now. The winner gets our new This Is Hell trucker cap, which will be available at our listener appreciation party on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio, and you still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question because... Uh, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet hurtling towards global temperatures that are unsustainable for human life? Our friend Eat Farts 69 said, holy underwear. Right. Uh, without the E. Yeah. Uh, Jack Marks and Sparks says ice baths, or do I mean ice? Icee baths. <laughs> all, all caps ice. Uh, Gorgeous Greg said death. <laughs> Gorgeous Greg said death. Kimmy Ramone says get baked. Rock Taster said I'll start a website which will enrich me, gradually destroy publishing, journalism, and penny capitalism, then market a sexy green energy product virtually stepping on the gas pedal. Once I have more than I, the government, I'll hire engineers to build a rocket ship. So long, suckers. (laughs) Uh, Free the Snake says, use the waves of capitalism's destruction to cool me off. Sean O says, go full on reptilian. Marquis de Sard said, set up camp in that legendary secret Nazi base underground in Antarctica and enjoy the ice while it lasts. Uh, Amy Therese of the podcast What's Left, which is one of my favorite podcasts, said, wet t-shirt in front of a fan. Uh, and I've got to say, putting on a wet T-shirt in front of a fan has got to be really hard. I was, uh, I was, when I was really, really poor instead of just really poor, um, we didn't couldn't afford an air conditioner. So I would put a fan in the window, and then I would put a bowl of ice in front of it, so it would turn into an air conditioner, and it actually kind of worked. Did it? Yeah. Uh, ban unpaid internships said. Our underground fallout shelters being below the Earth's surface will naturally stay cool. Yes, they will. And then uh, via Facebook. Let me pull this up. What is your summertime tip for staying cool uh, as we the planet hurls towards unsustainable temperatures? Ptor P said, "Effin, stay inside. Are you Daffy?" <laughs> Chris L says, "Naked slip and slide down the melting glaciers." Yeah. Hannah R says, "Lie on a chaise lounge and let your manservants fan you with palm fronds." <laughs> Duh. Scott M says, crack a window while lounging on the dry ice pile. It sounds like you were getting close to that, yeah, Chuck. Yeah, pretty close. Jack W says, wearing a tank top made of reusable straws. <laughs> Wait a second, Jack W. All right. Uh, Mark R says, uh, carapina. Oh, the, what is the Brazilian drink? Uh, caparinas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caparinas and pina coladas. Marty P says, buy a ticket at the movies and stay until fall. <laughs> Ronaldo M says, suck on ice-cold lemon slices and mutter obscenities. 
What's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet uh, hurtling towards unsustainable temperatures? Paolo S. says dying is the best way to beat climate change. Yeah. Miles M. says crop tops and alcohol. <laughs> Matt, M. Sa- or Matt T. says the mole people have always been gracious to us in the past. We should ask to live in their cool and vast underground caverns. Josh W. says Brondo. It's got what plants crave. Nick E. says Campari and soda. Yeah. Meredith A. says those short, those sports sleeves, they're made of spandex, and I wear them to keep my arms from burning while driving, but they somehow keep my arms very cold most of the time. <laughs> Edison K. says to beat the heat, you must take out your favorite whisk. Oh, you mean the other definition. Then to beat the heat, all you need is help from the Celtics or Warriors. Ooh, Edison, God, this is Jesus too bad. Crimey. Too bad. Puns. Wow. <laughs> Chris F. says, I've dug a chamber in my backyard about 30 feet deep to get acclimated to life underground. <laughs> Philip A. says, individual consumer choices. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's good. Philip A. Uh, Greg L. says, cranking up the AC, stay cool and get the whole death by AGW over and done with sooner. Victoria C. says, having a yard sale in northwestern Pennsylvania tomorrow in 110 degree heat index <laughs> because we need groceries. <laughs> Yay, capitalist hell. Husband is an IT professional for the hospital system that's the biggest employer in the state, and we still have medical debts. Wow. Benjamin C. says, take advantage of the filtered water at the uh, the YMCA. <laughs> Lisa B. says these, and then uh, pa- uh, sent us a link to uh, a recipe for frozen watermelon mojitos. Mm. Tom H. says, I just pee on myself. Warm <laughs> in the winter, cool in the summer. <laughs> it's not that much cool. Harold J. says, creating my own line of plastic drinking straws, each festooned with something witty or, dare I say, witchy. Adam K. says, I'm listening to some Miles Davis because there ain't nothing cooler than that. Alan ALW says, going to broil myself working 10 hours on asphalt parking lots so when I get heat stroke, at least I have health care. Hopefully I'll have enough saved up for the deductible. I'm afraid to check. Not knowing is part of the game. Wee. Rosemary B. says, uh, Rosalind B. says, adopt the nocturnal lifestyle. Nice and cool at one in the morning here. Uh, Nate T says, stop wearing that lizard people antiperspirant. <laughs> Jeffy B says, being born in the South or in hell. What do you, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on a planet rapidly hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? <laughs> Pete V says, move in with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Mark AS says, try the cold room at the ice detention center. <laughs> Fabio L says, acclimize to the heat by reading, by reading hot takes on Facebook from profile wearing sunglasses in a car. <laughs> Yeah, that is a very specific type of person who has bad takes on Twitter. Thank yeah. you, Fabio. Uh, they're always out of focus slightly, too. Who is it? Uh, people with sunglass oh, photos yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, always weird uncles. Uh, Warren L. says, crawl under a rock, become nocturnal, and develop thick uh, lizard-like armor. John T. says, mine helium from the sun while <laughs> adding additional hydrogen. Then we get the hydrogen, store the helium, and how to do the transfer, TBD. <laughs> Pammy H. says, BBQ indoors. James P. says, by about 10 in the morning, I give up believing that it isn't bad. Once I have no hope of cool weather, heat isn't so bad. Den says, sitting quietly with my feet in a stock pot of ice water, contemplating all the imaginary borders capitalism encourages us to fight over as the old white patriarchal system fiddles while the whole world burns. A couple more. Garrett L. says, by constructing my own still suit out of jewel Osco bags, surgical tubing, swimming goggles, then subsequently huffing nutmeg into oblivion. Uh. This is the second uh, week in a row of Dune references. Keep it up, guys. Allende Salvador says, stop flying and blow up some pipelines. <laughs> All right. Uh, Camilo P says, <laughs> I like that. Staying in the AC and cooling myself down with cold sweat realization that I'm making the problem worse. First Z says, set fire to ice. <laughs> that was uh, all caps ice. Ladio says, I'm living in the root cellar. I'm living the root cellar life. Andrew T says, Eskimo porn. 
<laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have read that one. I don't think you're supposed to say that. Uh, Mika D says, hug a libertarian for the chill. Aww. Thomas K says, gut Mitch McConnell and move into his cavernous shell. Very Star Jake Wars. Jake K idea. says, keep a cool head. Jeffy D says, get into a cryogenic study for the summer semester at a community college. They pay cash and it's not just for your head anymore. <laughs> and finally, John M says, deplore Trump, eschew Sanders, and support subservience to a meritocratic elite. Surely they will keep us cool as well as exercising our late capitalist hearts, the shard of Trumpism that beats there still. Uh, first of all, I want to just say about Laddie's comment, root cellar. When I was a kid, I thought it was fruit cellar for the longest time, and I couldn't understand why my parents weren't storing fruit in the fruit cellar. I really liked Astrid's uh, putting her feet in a stock pot full of ice water because uh, it gave me a, just made me think of Mary Cassatt. Uh, I loved Miles' uh, crop tops and alcohol, Paolo saying dying, Gorgeous Greg saying death, Jack W. saying take top with <laughs> made of reusable straws. But I gotta say, the winner for this week's question from hell. Again, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on planet on a planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? The winner is without a doubt Philip saying individual consumer choices cuz that is just sarcastically hilarious. Uh my response to this week's question from hell, what's your summertime tip to beat the heat on planet hurtling towards unsustainable global temperatures? My response is a great insulator from the heat is Earth. So in light of climate change, I would build a fancy, let's say wooden box with comfortable bedding inside, maybe have handles on the side so it's easy to raise and lower then dig a hole about six five seven yeah six feet deep put the box in the hole then climb into the box and have someone insulate it by shoveling dirt on top making certain that there's some sort of i don't know stone marker to remind you where you are staying cool in climate change yes the best way to do it is death again that makes this week's winner, Miles. We're sending you, uh, we'll be sending you a This Is Hell trucker cap that you will be able to get at the fourth annual 20th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show that's happening next Saturday, July 27th. By the way, thanks everyone for coming out to our weekly meet and greet, which is more a uh, think and drink. This is how office hours, also at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by, hang out, drink, watch me drink, get some free This Is Health advertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks this week goes out to the people who joined us this week, including Leo, Alex, Jonah, Brian, Lisa, Wally, Ronaldo, Richard, Nate, John, and I know I'm forgetting a few other people because I was, again, focused on getting home by nine as this was another brutal work week for reading writing and researching for the show. Man, I cannot wait to get to Cottage on Lake. Join us Wednesday meeting, Wednesday evenings at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours. Drop by, have a drink, get some advertising stickers and a book. And uh, don't forget that's going to be happening every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's 2251 West Devon. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, our last guest this week will discuss fugitivity and why blackness is trouble, is lawlessness, which makes sense when you realize how unjust 
the law is that is enforced and imposed upon black lives. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin tests our ornithological knowledge. We'll also have what we've been doing on our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll keep reminding you about our fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's next week. Uh, we will thank some listeners for sharing the show, others for sh- supporting the show online, and also uh, tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. When the law is unjust, it's not a just act to obey the law. The law is not justice. A moral, if the law is not justice, a moral, ethical person is forced to live a life outside that law of lawlessness, of, of lawlessness, of, of criminality, of, of fugitivity. Here to tell us what happens when racial injustice is imposed by the Law on Black Lives. Marquise Bay is author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marquise. Thank you so much for having me. It's a truly, truly an honor. Thank you. Man, this is really great having you on the show. This book is fantastic. I'm, I've got Alex bugging me to see if we can get some copies to uh, give out as prizes at our raffle next week because this... Oh, thank you. I, dude, I love this book. This is a really fantastic book. Uh, in May, Northwestern University announced that it had brought Marquise on board as an assistant professor, so congratulations on that, Marquise. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Also super nervous for the position, but still, nonetheless, very excited. Have you already moved here? I have not yet. I'll be moving uh, next month sometime. Um, so I'm still in the preparatory phases, phases um, but yeah, not there yet. But when you do, I owe you a beer for just being on the show. So please drop okay, by Carrie's cool. Lounge sometime. I'll definitely I'll buy you a drink. All right. Thank you, man. Also, uh, July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell. And all our guests this month were suggested by listeners. A listener by the name of Alex suggested Marquise. And I believe that's our producer on our show because he was like, look, I got to get a suggestion in as well. So let's start by something really, really basic. What do you mean by fugitivity? Because my spell check doesn't know that word. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so... I take the term fugitivity from a few thinkers in uh, Black feminist studies and Black studies. Um, So I'm drawing in particular on two thinkers. Uh, First, Tina Camp, um, who's a phenomenal Black feminist scholar, um, who essentially argues that fugitivity is what she calls a quotidian practice of refusal. And then I'm also drawing on the work of a thinker named Fred Moten, um, who understands fugitivity as a kind of a lawlessness or breaching of inframing. Um, so essentially, fugitivity is the act of uh, escaping uh, through a kind of subversive relation to, to power. Fugitivity is a kind of a relation to power that is itself subversive and um, refusative in some ways. And you write that fugitivity references stolen life. Who or yeah. what stole the lives of those in fugitivity? Yeah, so if we're if we're talking specifically about say um, black life in the West, um, in 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 particular the colonial era of enslavement of of black lives, uh, then the the stealing of of, of that life um, by white colonial um, slave owners, um, and also just the general sense sensoria of of the the country, then to steal one's life back isn't is a kind of fugitivity. Um, for, to have one's life and livelihood stolen, and then to steal that life back is an act of 
one might say, even divine transgression insofar as um, in that era, it was seen as kind of divine and godly in many ways to, to think about Black life in this way. Um, the institution of enslavement was to, to many uh, divinely ordained. Um, so if one is to demonstrate a kind of agency, autonomy over their own life, life and livelihood, then one must steal their life back. And that, to me, is a profound act of fugitivity. It's a, it's a subversion of the dominant, even divine uh, power structure and hierarchy to steal one's life back from those very structures. Is fugitivity then revolutionary? Absolutely, absolutely. And revolutionary, not in the typical sense. Um, oftentimes, revolution is thought of as this kind of uh, this overt, explicit um, kind of conflagration. Uh, but fugitivity, while it could be that, I think it's oftentimes, and I'm drawing on the Black feminist uh, poetics, really, of a thinker named Alexis Pauline Gums, it can actually be in those kind of quiet moments. Uh, fugitivity can happen in, say, the breaking of tools um, that enslaved uh, Black life uh, kind of did, um, or also it's just in the the moments where one is experiencing joy, precisely when um, it's kind of pervasively ordained that Black life must be understood as, quote unquote, socially dead. Um, so fugitivity is incredibly revolutionary, but revolutionary oftentimes in those quiet, subversive, uh, lower frequencies. That that power of joy, that kind of revolutionary spirit of joy. What does that tell? What does that reveal about the political economic system that we live in when joy, when happiness can be a revolutionary act? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, so insofar as a black, queer, trans life is uh, caught or mired in a pervasive white cis male supremacy, um, that that power structure dictates or mandates even um that Black, queer, and trans life must be uh, understood as a kind of social death. Um, and that breeds a sense of hopelessness, a sense of uh, trauma, and all those things. To experience, intentionally experience joy um, is incredibly revolutionary. And I'm drawing here on um, poet, Black woman poet, uh, Lyra Van Cleese Stefanen, who's at Cornell University. Um, she says quite literally that her joy is revolutionary. Um, so to experience joy, when it's so pervasive that um, that one must be mandated to be unhappy, then to experience joy is itself a subversive position to that pervasive milieu in which we're living. So, so joy can very much act as a way to, to subvert all that and also to mobilize oneself and others to some kind of political action. You write that methodological interrogation is the fugitivity I will be speaking about. It is a way of inhabiting the world, a posture of interrogation and refusal. How mm -hmm. does fugitivity change the way you inhabit your world? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think it, at least for me, I'm going to try to uh, fixate this on myself so I want to speak for others and, and how they inhabit fugitivity in particular ways. But for me, it's I think it's a way of intentionally walking and inhabiting the world in such a way that makes you aware of the mechanisms in place. Um, so oftentimes folks kind of inhabit the world and receive um, the various power dynamics that are acting on them. Fugitivity allows one an intention with respect to that, and not only an intention with respect to navigating all of those systems and uh, structures, but to try to act in ways that subvert them in as much as they are 
violent toward others than oneself. So fugitivity gives you this kind of posture in the world. It gives you a way to to inhabit the world intentionally um, and in in a way that allows you to then combat the various structures that betide, violently betide you and other people, um, rather than simply passively receiving and navigating it. You navigate it with intention. You write that their rules stifle what comes in the break of the cut. It's where we keep finding life lived otherwise, life on the run in inexhaustible exhaustion. How much do rules stifle black lives? Yeah, um, so we might understand rules or ruliness as a way to, to order and circumscribe uh, black life um, and to to then operate under a sense of lawlessness or fugitivity means that one must necessarily become unruly. And that unruliness is, well, yes, it may be understood in some ways as criminality, but we must understand that criminality is not a kind of transparent, self-evident kind of category. Criminality is inscribed into laws, um, and it's not it's not a, a an obvious kind of declaration of an, a certain act. Um, while there, there's a way that Black life simply living itself um, has been described as a criminal act or uh, trans folks who are expressing their genders in ways that uh, refute and transgress the gender binary are kind of criminal acts. So criminality in many ways might index or reference a way to live, as I say, otherwise. And that otherwise way of living is a way to get outside of these rules, these rules that are fundamentally violent. Um, And so since, for me, uh, radical Black feminism is about mitigating violence precisely for the most marginalized, then one is in many ways called to be a criminal. Uh, One is called to be either a criminal or to be an accomplice to criminality because to transgress the law is itself a kind of salvific salvation kind of kind of action because of the law's inherent violence. You're right. We may do with what we did and didn't have. Imaginative games became not just not only fun, but also life sustaining. We flourished yeah. in the face of abjection like now nah, we don't need we don't do that over here. And we may do in the simplest of ways, like you want to play some basketball. Well, you ain't got no court. And you just put up a milk crate. I've done that a million times. But when I wasn't you're right. But when I wasn't shooting hoops or rather shooting crates, I dwelled in the recesses of my own fraught mind, the break in which black life is situated, where unavoidable subjection meets a radical breakdown. What do you mean by the break in which black life is situated? Yeah, and I'm drawing that from specifically Fred Moten's book, which is titled In the Break, and that came out in 2013 with University of Minnesota Press. Um, So for him, the black black radical tradition is situated in the break, Um, and that break is a kind of fissure that is within the general social milieu. Um, the break is the, the space where, or even perhaps the non-space in as much as uh, the break is where where things get lost and unconsidered. Um, but the break is where Black life inhabits because it is the site of where these otherwise unruly ways of, of living might, uh, might flourish. Um, and in that flourishing, might then allow one a kind of access to an alternative way of living, or or rather a way of living in which those who have been disallowed uh, a certain kind of life can actually finally live. 
You write about your brother, Gordon, who you describe as troublesome, three and a half years my senior. He made the world his playground, a sandbox full of possibilities, swings of pendulous danger and ebullience, and a slide racing toward a perpetual laugh amid strife, LOLing even in a cauldron of uncertainty. Gordon was the one out wreaking havoc, cutting up in the streets, operating in the existential space between criminality and revolution, the existential space between criminality and revolution. How do you see criminality and revolution related? Is what many might see as and call criminality somehow a revolution? I think so. I think so. Um, and yeah, my brother has been uh, a kind of template for precisely that kind of that kind of uh, inhabitation. Um, so again, I, I noted criminality before and how it's not simply a kind of transparent uh, category, um, but rather an imposed category that uh, marks what is against or outside of the law. Um, and that might actually be a, a salvation. There's a way that to inhabit or enact a certain kind of criminality or a certain kind of action when it's being criminal can give you a glimpse into other ways we might live outside of the various kind of violent regimes in which we are we are mired. Um, so to do those criminal acts um, might be the revolutionary act itself precisely because of that getting outside of the the violent structures that uh, encumber us. And that, I think, is, is revolutionary. When we get outside of that um, or when we, when we subvert that, um, even though it presumes itself to be just and ethical and simply a kind of order, it nonetheless has, by definition, a violent relationship to uh, marginalized folks or a violent relationship to the people it marginalizes. Um, so to to act in subversion of that is itself revolutionary. And in other words, to be revolutionary necessitates that one become a criminal um, in, a, in a way that is not simply to be negatively connoted, but is I think, in fact, it's obvious um, to be positively, positively connoted because we are getting outside of that violence and we are um, trying to get others outside of that violence in order to mitigate violence itself. Under neoliberalism, uh, we know that lives are very disposable. We've had these discussions about the disposability of life with Henry Giroux on several occasions. You mentioned the disposedness of black lives. Must you be ever vigilant in attempting to escape that disposedness? Is that escape always ongoing? Because the thing I keep thinking about is it must be exhausting. It is, yeah, yeah, yes, it is. It's incredibly exhausting. And I, and this is something I'm, I'm really trying to, to work through. So I don't have a full-fledged answer right now. It's not entirely fleshed out. But at the moment, I, I, I do think it, it must be a kind of ceaseless, perpetual act and but I don't want to see that as necessarily exhausting in a sense that we're going to get tired quickly that we're going to burn out but in that ceaselessness I'm hoping and I'm drawing here on uh, black feminist poet Harriet Mullen uh, that in the in the fugitivity in the running in the the escape and subversion that is where we find our freedom um, so it's not simply in the the arriving at a particular destination and then we are free, but it is in the the running, the escape, that we find a kind of freedom. Um, and that, I think, can be a kind of salvation if we rework and reroute and recalibrate how we understand freedom through that running, through that getting outside of these various normative frames, then perhaps we can find a kind of solace in that one might call chaos, one might call uh, exhaustion uh, or inexhaustible exhaustion. I'm hoping possibly that we can find some kind of 
joy, uh, solace, freedom, something in in the running to to not understand it simply as exhausting, but to find it as generative and a sense of or a place of hope. Can anyone live a life, live in a life in a state of fugitivity? Yes, I'd, I'd say so. I'd say so. And this is, I think, in part where the the controversiality of my work um, gets. So I am a student, um, proverbially and literally, of uh, people like Hortense Spillers, uh, Fred Moten, C. Riley Snorton. Uh, these people um, allow me to think of Blackness, Black feminism, and queerness and transness in a way that is unfixed from a certain kind of somatic uh, presentation. Um, so blackness, black feminism, queerness and trans, they're not simply terms for uh, an identity that one has, but rather a kind of a kind of posture and way of inhabiting the world. So um, I, I noted Hortense Spillers earlier, um, and um, I'm thinking about her um, because she primarily roots blackness as well as black feminism in a, a notable distinction whereby whereby blackness and black feminism reference what she calls a philosophical disobedience and a systematic skepticism and refusal that she says is available to anyone or more pointedly any posture willing to take on the, the uh, formidable task of thinking as a willful act of invention and interrogation. So blackness, black feminism, queerness and transness are then not reducible to those people who are called black or black and woman or black and trans or all three. Um, though it certainly has uh, those people at its proverbial heart, but the the radical black feminism that I want to, to posit in the book and also just in my general kind of intellectual corpus um, is a fugitive project by which I mean it's radically non-exclusive uh, with respect to to who can take on its demand. And that demand is to dismantle apparatuses of captivity, understand racialized gender as a violent normative regime to be abolished, to to transgress um, and trans-imposed ontologies, to create and cultivate a different sociality in which those who have been been suppressed from living within identity disallowed on a social terrain can finally live. So it's another word, as my title alludes to, it's another word to go by goon rules. We are speaking with Marquise Bay, author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. You mentioned C. Riley Snorton. We had <laughs> Riley on the show uh, last year, I believe, and people can hear that interview at thisishell.com. It was fascinating. He is uh, they're, they're, absolutely, absolutely spectacular writer. Um, <clears throat> so you write, what I've extracted from the fugitive debris in which I was reared, a fugitivity infected by the demanding nexus of black and women, is that it names a way of living together in the undercurrents of governance. It is not necessarily a model or template. It is, in fact, defiant of these. It is a flash, a glimmer, a flicker that forces us to see and do differently. It engenders our doing something, not our being something. It engenders our moving with others on unruly grounds. If it is not a model or a template, what can be learned? What can be gleaned from the fugitivity within which you were raised without it being a model or a template? Yeah, so so the the phrases of or the terms of model and template seem to demarcate certain limits, um, and that's precisely what I'm trying to to refuse or go against the dem- demarcation of limits and boundedness. Um, so fugitivity for me is a kind of not only stolen life but unbounded life, and that doesn't mean that it can be 
anything necessarily, but that it does not presume to know its contours in advance. Um, so it's not a model or a template because it wants to advance a certain kind of openness, radical openness and vulnerability that allows for it to always be critical and vigilant of its blind spots. Um, so it, it refuses the, the boundedness of, say, a model because it wants to always be vigilant of uh, what might be outside of a certain kind of model, um, especially because um, all these things are always shifting um, and and being mutated. Um, so it needs to be open to that mutation and thinking about itself differently when, say, um, other things come into play or other people come into play um, and to and critique with whatever kind of uh, intellectual apparatus we have at our disposal. Um, it's always open to that self-critique. So that's why I can't be in my estimation, a template or model, because it always has to be open to the otherwise and the alternative. I want everybody to prepare themselves because I'm going to read Lil Wayne lyrics, and when a white guy does that, it sounds freaking awful, so please bear with me. You write, though I am decidedly no fanboy of Lil Wayne, the dude said something really insightful in the 2008 smash hit, A Millie. That John, and John is like a mathematical variable, an X that can stand in for any noun according to the logic of Philly slang, and I love that slang, was blasting from the cars of everybody on my block, had all the guys on my football team like A Millie, A Millie, A Millie, A Millie, maddening really but Wayne rhymed a perceptive two bars in the first verse tell the coppers ha 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 you can't catch them you can't stop them I go by them goon rules if you can't beat them then you pop them Wayne is onto something really penetrative here a kind of blackness I'd say a fugitive blackness what do you hear Lil Wayne saying within those lyrics that white people like me might not be hearing <laughs> So I am, I'm utilizing his notion of goon rules as an alternative or otherwise mode of conceiving of inhabiting the world that acts not in opposition, but in subversion of normative rules, which Lil Wayne roots in coppers, uh, which might be understood as a, as a proxy for a white masculinist supremacy. So in other words, goon rules are the kind of non-rules of fugitive. And fugitivity, since that's my primary lens for, for thinking about Blackness, Black feminism, and queerness, um, fugitivity is to meet the face of the coppers and in response to, to that, say, ha, 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 ha. It's a kind of laugh of subversion that does not even acknowledge the purported uh, power that the coppers have. That's really amazing. So uh, you write, uh, to use Lil Wayne's words, the fugitive in the face of the coppers, a proxy for all the uh, attempts to violently capture or exterminate, says, ha ha, ha ha, a hearty laugh that signifies both playfulness and mischievousness. Informative of this is the trajectory in which exposures of holes in the state's power highlight their ultimate illegitimacy. To what extent is the illegitimacy of the state a core theme of rap? Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I think there's a history in, in hip-hop and rap that is, is in many ways an alternative discourse um, to the very discourse that we've been, that we've been given by say, the state, um, by various kind of institutions and forms of governance. Uh, hip-hop is a, a kind of underground language, if I may uh, characterize it in that way, uh, a way of thinking about and giving language to, giving life to, different ways of thinking about what the world is or how the world is. Um, Hip-hop has often been a 
a voice for the marginalized, as folks might say. Um, and in that voicedness, it speaks various truths to power, to use that that kind of key social justice term terminology. Um, it's a it's a way to undermine the legitimacy of the state of the state by um, speaking various truths that are, for the most part, um, suppressed by by the state in power. Um, so hip hop acts as that that alternative voice, um, that that speaking of a different kind of truth to power in a way that that dismantles and undermines that power. So what is missed then when music like Lil Wayne's is simply labeled as or dismissed as being anti-cop and only seeing it as something that is in opposition to law enforcement? Yeah, what's missed is, I think, the inherent critique of the the inherent violence of, um, say, police states or the law and things like that. So when we understand someone like Lil Wayne or others as simply being quote unquote cop haters. Um, and this happened with uh, NWA as well. Um, when we, when we understand it simply in that vein, we only interrogate the the response to the very violence that is happening that engenders that response. Um, so it, it completely obscures the violence that provokes and invokes that response. Um, and what, what I'm trying to critique and interrogate is the very violence inherent to the law and the police, et cetera. And that's what I want to draw attention to, the, the precipitating violence rather than the defense against that violence, which gets cast as a kind of violence without recognizing the violence that um, was imposed initially that invoked the response. Are goon rules then nonviolent? What are the goon rules? Yeah, so I, I think they are nonviolent because they seek to, to mitigate violence. And there's a moment in uh, in the the book where I meditate specifically on on violence because a friend of mine asked me whether I, um, especially with um, me growing up in in the ghetto of Philly and its outskirts, um, that he assumed that maybe I'm I'm okay with with violence. And I I didn't really have a good answer when I when I first talked to him about this, but I'm still a bit vexed on where I stand with respect to violence, but I am kind of certain on wanting to mitigate violence as much as possible. Um, and if we understand, say, uh, being cordoned in uh, ghettos um, that uh, that curtail um, the proliferation of life, that is the kind of violence. And we understand, say, white flight and gentrification and all these things as kinds of violence, uh, then my recalibration of what might be called nonviolence might take the form of things that have, or not historically, but by power been understood as violence. So I want to rethink what we mean by by violence. Um, Mass incarceration is a kind of of violence. Um, So I'm nonviolent to the extent that whatever I or anyone is doing to mitigate violence is a kind of nonviolence. And that might look like uh, punching Nazis, for example, where on the face it might seem like a kind of physical violence. I want to rethink that as a kind of nonviolence, precisely because it is a mitigation of a more pervasive violence. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, you uh, quote award-winning writer Eula Biss stating, mm-hmm. whiteness is not a kinship or a culture. White people are no more closely related to one another genetically than we are to black people. What binds us is that we share a system of social advantages that can be traced back to the advent of slavery and the colonies that became the United States. For me, whiteness is not an identity but a moral problem. Not, we all know race is a biological fiction, as so many people, including another award-winning writer, Elizabeth Colbert, who has been on our show, has so eloquently argued. So is seeing yourself as white 
Do you believe that is immoral? So, okay. I want to be very nimble with this. Um, so I, I want to make a distinction between white people and whiteness. Um, and that distinction rests in understanding the, the culprits, as it were, not being what one looks like, but the extent to which one believes that they inherit a certain kind of superiority or supremacy. Um, so the distinction between whiteness and white people is that, yeah, there are ostensibly people who we call white. Okay, fine. Um, but the, where the problem comes in, I'm, and I'm thinking in particular of Tanasi Coates, who I have critiques of, but nonetheless, I think his uh, phrasing here is pretty, pretty spot on. Um, in his, in his, uh, his book, Between the World and Me, he consistently said the people who believe they are white uh, rather than white people. And that, I think, is the, the distinction I want to make. The people who think they are white believe in whiteness. And whiteness itself, to me, is a kind of inherent violence that, work, that gets its identity from the subordination of various other kinds of what we call races. <clears throat> so, so I, to be quite honest, have no problem with, with white people. Um, it's the extent to which one believes that they are white or the extent to which one believes in the rightness of whiteness that I have the, the problem with. It's, as uh, Eula Biss says, a moral pl- problem. Um, so to think of oneself as white or to, to see that one has white skin, not at all a problem to me. It's the extent to which one believes that they are white or rather believes that whiteness is a characteristic of them and other people. That's when I, I take the issue. And I hope that distinction makes sense. You write that whiteness can afflict anyone. What is missed in our understanding of whiteness when it is believed that only white people can engage in whiteness? Yeah, um, what's, what's missed is then that one presumes that uh, this person who is black like me has my best interest in mind, which is not at all always the case. Um, so there are there are folks who look like me who are identifiably black-skinned um, and yet subscribe to the tenets of, of whiteness who will inscribe policies or discourses or behaviors that speak to the detriment of um, people of color. Um, So anyone really can be afflicted by this sense of understanding uh, whiteness and what it believes in as being right and as wanting to proliferate that. Um, And so what's missed then is that one does not have, I think, a a good sense of who their political allies and uh, who the people they want to be in solidarity with are. Um, So I want to advance a capacious and expansive understanding of who my, who my people are, as it were. Um, And I, and that's why I'm devoted to political identity by which I mean, we, I want to understand my, my people, my comrades as not necessarily people that look like me because they're, to me, is very little um, cachet in someone simply looking like me. I want to know where your politics are. Um, I want to know how you put yourself to work in relation to power. And that then, to me, is the basis on which we form a kind of coalition and solidarity rather than a representational politics. I want to understand it as a political kind of coalition building um, that has as its criteria how one relates to power rather than what one looks like. How difficult is it for white people to not participate in whiteness? That is, isn't whiteness something that is imposed on all of us by the political economic system within which we operate? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is It is 
pervasive um, and it's a formidable force. Um, so it's incredibly difficult. Um, but I, what I find incredible value in the extent to which one uh, acts in subversion to that difficult um, task of undermining and refusing whiteness. Um, so it's, it's incredibly difficult, but that difficulty to me indexes and references the extent to which one believes in the kind of political order or political disorder, if you, if you will, um, is, is the kind of the, the way that I want to, to relate to, to people. Um, so it's difficult, yes, but in that difficulty, I think I can get a better sense or a clearer sense of who my political allies are and could be. You write about the revolutionary nature of uh, hair, and it's really very interesting. You write, we rocked froze back in the 70s when we raised our fists in defiance. So this is a lineage in which I, too, engage. This is why they sometimes get scared because my and others' illustrious naps, a phrasing construed as oxymoronic and paradoxical, evoke powers untenability. If this power is untenable, then why does it persist? And is its fall inevitable and unavoidable? Yeah, I don't have a good answer. I really, I really don't. And I wish I did. Um, I mean, it's, it's untenable to me because it proliferates harm and violence um, and, and disallows uh, the flourishing of life. Uh, so in that sense, to me, it's, it's untenable and, and unjust and unethical. Um, but why it persists? I don't. I really don't have a good answer to that. Um, it's a it's a curiosity I still have. Um, I think in part many people believe in it, um, and and I think it's a it's a incredibly inviolable inviolable way to to structure one's reality. Um, so to to extricate oneself from that reality is incredibly difficult and has the sense of being a kind of violent act to one's self-identity. Um, so perhaps that's one reason why it still persists, um, because it very much structures our reality now. But nevertheless, I don't know why it's not more uh, combative, or perhaps it is, and I just um, haven't seen that yet. But yeah, my, my answer to that is not the best, because it's still something that baffles me. So perhaps that's why I, I write so so much. Um, it's a kind of perpetual pursuit to to think about why it persists and to try to get others to undermine it. But nevertheless, it still persists. And I'm still going to have to continue thinking about why that is. You quote Malcolm X writing, I realize I'm saying some things that you think can't get me in trouble, but I was born in trouble. You add as Malcolm X, I, to be clear and nowhere near twisted because of my blackness, was born in trouble. Indeed, one might say that this is at least in part what blackness is. What blackness Mm -hmm. means and signifies does and portends trouble. Without trying to be voyeuristic or engage in tragedy porn, what is life like when it is a life lived in trouble? It's a, I mean, this is, I, no pun intended, but it's incredibly troublesome, I think. Um, and by that, I mean, it's a kind of, it's a way of living in the world in which uh, one might always be the promoter of a problem. And this is Du Boisian in the sense of, uh, how does it feel to be a problem? Um, it's that sense of one's blackness being always understood as the culprit um, with respect to things that are understood as problems. Um, so it's the sense of always being aware that one's blackness could be seen as or pointed to as the generator of a certain kind of problem or a certain kind of difficulty in the world, um, always being understood as a scapegoat. Um, but in that, I find a 
something that's generative and, and valuable in that um, in, in being a problem, that means one is problematizing something. And if I understand that something as normative, hegemonic, uh, white cis male supremacy, then I think it's actually quite good to be problematizing that. So in the causing of the problem via blackness there, I find something incredibly generative and uh, a way to glimpse what might what another world might look like, one that is more just and ethical. You're right to think of one's non-normative and oppositional relation to hegemony, and this primarily is, is that which then allows one to understand oneself as in blackness, even as in queerness and black feminism. A radically subversive disposition, as it were, to fugitivity as such, which is to allow, uh, to always index blacknesses always already queerness. It's always already gender trouble. There is then an unbreakable relation between blackness and its quintessential, non-essential definition of and as revolutionary politics. How does queerness and gender trouble already reside within blackness? Yeah, um, so I'm drawing, or I'm I'm thinking primarily of this uh, black non-binary scholar, Che Gossett, um, who has this phenomenal, phenomenal piece in, I believe it's the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, and they are referencing, say, for example, um, during Jim Crow segregation. Um, so you have the the bathroom signs in particular. You had uh, women, men, and colors. So uh, whiteness was uh, able to hold uh, different gender differentiation, whereas colored, then uh, the gender differentiation, gender differentiation was collapsed. Um, so blackness then was the kind of housing of a certain kind of gender trouble in that regard, uh, a certain kind of uh, collapsing or troubling or ungendering, to use Hortense Phillips' phrase, of gender. Um, so blackness harnesses that by way of critiquing the inherent or uh, implicit uh, symbolic whiteness of gender. And in that critique, uh, we might then understand blackness as always and already indexing a certain kind of queerness or transness in as much as those two things uh, seek to, to disrupt the mechanisms that, to me, um, are inherent to the violence of the regime of gender. Um, so blackness, to me, allows for a certain avenue through which we can get at something other than gender, ways of inhabiting ourselves that are outside of or tangential to the hegemonic and violent regime of gender. You write about what you call the dark side, saying we are or are at least trying really hard at moving beneath the normative gaze that structures proper thought and proper inhabitation of the world. We are we in here, regardless of who we be or who we were. Here we can be together, bumping into one another in critical intimacy, coming up with new ways to be, new ways to think. I like it in here, in the dark, all my people are here with me. What is the dark side and can anyone inhabit it? So to the second part of the question, yes, anyone can inhabit it. And that's my my uh, radical, non-exclusionary openness that I get from, from Black feminism and Black studies. Um, this sense of a kind of, uh, if I may cite a, a white philosopher, though radical he may be, uh, Jacques Derrida, this kind of unconditional hospitality um, that that one must, and this is for me an ethical commitment and call, one must be non radically non-exclusionary and open to the possibility of uh, anyone coming in precisely because one must operate on a kind of unbordered 
um, uncriteriaed, unruled sense of coalition building. Um, and that, that to me is, is what the dark side is, this place of once you inhabit that space, that space begins to act on you. Um, so even though, and, and I'm thinking here of a whole bunch of thinkers and scholars um, that I'm just trying to distill, um, but once you enter this space, this space of subversion and the space of radicality and iconoclasm, this space also acts on you. So you unbecome yourself um, in that regard and uh, come into a different kind of identity and subjectivity via the space that is subversive and iconoclastic. Um, so the dark side is a kind of metonym for that sense of, or that posture of inhabiting the world via um, a kind of rejection or refusal of hegemonic identities, of violent kinds of regimes and ontologies, all that. So anyone can enter it. And once you enter it, its characteristics of subversion and iconoclasm begin to act on you. And if this makes sense, subjectivate you or rather activate you as a particular kind of subject through this space. Sweet. Now I want to go uh, to the dark side for vacation. We are speaking with Marquise Bay. He is author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. In May, Northwestern University announced that it had brought Marquise on board as an assistant professor. You can follow Marquise on Twitter at Marquise D. Bay. That's B-E-Y. July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell. All our guests this month were suggested by listeners. And the listener that suggested Marquise is sitting across the glass from me right now, our producer. Sir Alex. One last question for you, Marquise, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, I want to move arm in arm with the misfits, the uh, deviants, the lowlifes and imbeciles, the poor and the uneducated, because rebellious knowledge happens underground. Earlier we were speaking to Raquel Varela, and she was talking about the uh, Portuguese revolution of 1974 and 1975, and she was saying how Portugal was 30% illiterate, yet those illiterate people immediately engaged in the direct democracy experiments that they had, the Soviets that were being built up in Portugal. What do we miss about rebellion when we dismiss, ignore, or erase the thoughts, the beliefs, the political ideas of the marginalized? Yeah, we think in a fundamental sense, we we miss other ways to be. Um, So much has uh, the the normative hegemony, um, and however one understands that, so much has that been the, the descriptor of what is possible, what is real, uh, what is right and good and just. Um, and when we, when we overlook those people who have fallen or who have been forced and coerced outside of that kind of reality, which is itself structured and imposed, then we miss other ways to be. And those other ways to be can be the very salvation um, of the people who are who have been disallowed to, to live um, in the world. Um, so we miss, in a fundamental sense, different ways to live. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is an ethical call, an ethical commitment, an ethical demand. Marquise, uh, at the end of the year, every year, I announce a list of the best books featured here on This Is Hell, and there is no doubt in my mind that you're going to be on this list this year. I, well, I appreciate to, to the, This book is amazing, and I can't thank, thank you. you enough for it. It really uh, opens my eyes and opens my brain, which is a lot more important. So thank you so much, Marquise, for being on the show. Again, his book is Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thank you so, so much for having me. Truly, it was an honor and a privilege. And don't forget, I owe you a beer. Oh, yes, absolutely. All right, I'll take care, Marquise. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a 
horrible uh, business model. In a moment, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin tests our ornithological knowledge. And I'm really, really proud of the fact that I haven't screwed up that word all morning. I thought for sure I was going to mispronounce knowledge. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits. On Patreon this week, I explained how AOC was being called a commie by D-I-C-K-S in the GOP, who clearly don't know what a commie is, let alone understand communism. Hell, they don't even have a critique of capitalism, nothing. They don't have an analysis of the dominant economic political system in the world. But the only way you can hear that, as well as our first ever interview with Henry Giroux dating back to 2009, is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Special thanks this week for joining us as Patreon patrons goes to Lisa, Nick, Matej, Chris, and Edison. I'm not too sure if that's Thomas Edison or former Major League pitcher Edison Volquez, but it's got to be one of those two. Thanks for joining us. On Patreon this week, if you want to support truly independent media and keep us completely independent, we take no grants, we take no advertising money, we are not beholden to anyone, which is more than can be said for a lot of what you think are alternative and independent media outlets, but are not. Support This Is Hell by becoming a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, and every week get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get Otherwise, that's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We are hoping that next week for our anniversary show that we will be doing it from our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. We are not positive that that's going to be taking place, but we are hoping it does. And if it does... We are hoping to have a video, a live video feed of that show, but you can only get that live video feed if you are a Patreon subscriber. Everybody else still gets the show for free and can listen over the air or online if they want to, but if you want the video, additional stuff that we've never offered to our audience in the past, you have to become a Patreon subscriber. So if you actually want to watch somebody doing radio, which makes no sense, you can by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell and watching the show next week. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell during the moment of truth, Jeff tests our ornithological knowledge. We'll also keep reminding you about our upcoming party on uh, next Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Alex, I know you have half a hand on Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I drove by two older white people arguing. Each seemed to be the representative of a group of onlookers. One demanded heatedly, heatedly, belligerently, do you know what a stork is? Challenging. But in a flash, I'd driven past, and I could only wonder what this challenge was in reference to. Was it in fact a duel of ornithological knowledge? Did you hear me? Was it? Are you listening? Are you even present? Oh, look at you. Good for you. You're here. That's more than most people can say. 
there are a few ways to look at that. Either we're all among a select few, or we're among a crappy few, or we're just a random set. Don't be mean to me. I will cry. That's my trademark. That's what I was known for as a baby. Oh, like you never cried when you were a baby. Well, I cried a lot. I cried every day. I cried and cried. I was known as the town crier. I got the creative bug. Just feel creative. No ideas, just the general feeling of creativity. I bet I could spread this bug. I bet I could spread creativity. Don't you all feel it in your mind and in your imagination, which is also up here? Creativity. It's a feeling. You don't need ideas if you're creative. Think about it. Everyone thinks they have imagination. Everyone in L.A. People come here for three reasons. They think they have talent, or they think they have imagination, or they imagine they have talent. So it shouldn't be a total loss. I'm going to get some work done while I'm up here. I got some vegetables to chop. Going to make a stock. Got got some dinner parties coming up. Got to have homemade stock. Stock is good as a basis for soup, sauces, and reheating, rehydrating, savory leftovers. Rice, buckwheat groats, farro, and other grains are nice when made with stock. Some vegetables need to be blanched or boiled, and stock is the way to go. It adds richness and flavor to boiled things. Things people are enamored with roasting these days, such as root vegetables, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts. These can profit from a bit of blanching or even boiling in a stock before being put in the oven or under a broiler. Hills, or even mountains, rise from the mist in the distance. Not really mist, more like haze. Although, unlike most days, haze here is white, only a slight off-white tinge of smog and dust. Later today, I imagine... It will brown to an unsightly umber. Ah, life. Life is a death sentence. Do you know what a stork is? Was it maybe an argument about reproductive rights and female body sovereignty? Because our national discourse is polarized these days, to use the current term. And one of the most contentious divisions, and one in which the opposing parties seem all but impossible to bring eye to eye, is a woman's right to medically terminate her pregnancy or even to terminate it by magic. A rational basis for argument seems to elude both sides, because positing the primacy of one or another state of being is an inherently irrational activity. The idea that when a sperm penetrates an ovum, something sacred is created, is irrational, sure. The idea that a fully grown woman has sovereignty over tissue gestating in her own body, as well as whether or not she should undergo the extreme biological metamorphosis that gestation will catalyze, well, that has a much more persuasive basis to me, and certainly to most fully grown women I know, but is it rational? Sovereignty is an agreement, an agreement about control, about autonomy, about freedom, about the ability to determine one's possibilities, whereas the sacred is an agreement about what is sacred. It's a circular agreement. But in the end, the decision over which holds more weight, adult sovereignty, or invisible or microscopic sanctity, is irrational. But even knowing this, admitting this to myself, I still couldn't puzzle my way back to what the argument would be that would be met with the throwing down of such a gauntlet. When is it appropriate to cross that line, to step up to someone, stand one's ground, and force the other party to summarize their stork knowledge? Do you know what conception is? Do you know what an embryo is? Do you know what pregnancy is? Do you even know what a stork is? Come on now, Jeffy, be rational. At least be coherent. You have imagination, or at least a talent for imagining you do. Now, 
you bunch have a lot of damn nerve demanding coherence from me. Here I am, driving around, minding my own business, and the human flesh on the street tosses out this question, this belligerent question, this question that's delivered in a belligerent way, belligerent for no reason, and you ask me to be coherent? Do you know what a stork is? The stork, like an idiot, brings the baby. But do you know what it is? You imagine you know what a baby is. You imagine you know what bring is. But a stork, a stork, a goddamn stork. Do you know how God puts the human soul into an embryo? Do you know how many different lives that zygotic collision could end up living? Do you know what diseases it could cure or what happiness it could bring? Do you know what a stork is? And conversely, do you know how dangerous it is to to grow a human being inside your body? Do you know how many women die in the process? Do you know how it changes someone's life? Can you know how it changes someone's life for good and ill? Do you know what social, medical, and economic entanglements that endeavor involves a person in? And do you know what kind of myriad futures that woman could have had if she'd only had sovereignty over her own body? Shouldn't she be able to decide what path her present takes toward the future? Do you know what possibilities that future holds? Do you know anything the future holds? Do you know what a stork is? The answer is no. You don't know what a stork is. No one does. You lack the most essential knowledge. And lacking all that knowledge, why are you meddling in someone else's body and future? How dare you meddle in someone else's body and future with your complete lack of knowledge? It's something we all need to ask ourselves. Whenever we presume that we know what's right for someone else, before you act, before you make that sovereignty-molesting decision, before you dip your dirty fingers into someone else's chili fries and take a glob, ask yourself, do I know what a stork is? Do I know what a stork is? Do I know what a stork is? This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, it was lovely seeing you last weekend, despite the circumstances, sir. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, that's very nice of you. All right, Jaffe, we're running up against the clock. I'm going to let you go. There ain't no clock. I know there isn't, but I got stuff to do. (laughs) All right, stay beautiful. Bye, darling. Live from Land Stolen from the Natives, this is Hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share... The entire shows are individual interviews or correspondence reports. We want to thank everybody who did share this week, or at least the people who shared on Facebook. Thanks this week goes out to Jake, who said of our interview last week with historian Gerald Horn, great author, great interview, enjoy. Thanks also goes out to Rob, Julie, Astrid. Thanks to the ton of people who shared last week's interview with Henry Giroux, including Captain Moonlight and Kev who both thought it was an excellent interview. Thanks to Christopher Randell, Van Monk, Seamus... Victoria, Nick, George, anti-tanky cookies for anti-reactionary nookies who posted, if you only listen to one political podcast, it should be This Is Hell. Thanks to Sarah for sharing our interview with Simon Pirani last week. We will be offering Simon Pirani's book, Burning Up, as a prize for our raffle next week during the party, Saturday July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, starting at 3 p.m. and going all day next Saturday and night. Uh, Sarah had this comment about that interview. Throw on your headphones, pretend you're working, and listen to the Simon Pirani conversation. Also, thanks to Thomas, Marco, and Kimsky for sharing our talk with Simon as well. Finally, thanks to Johnny, Jesse, and Gorilla Gramophonics 
for sharing. I just want to read a couple more emails we got. Uh, another show contacted us, not just the Michael Brooks show, to see if I would be available for interviews. I haven't done this kind of stuff before because I've always thought, you know, why would you want to interview me? We've had all these great experts on the show. That's the people who you should be talking to. So I've always said no to these kinds of things. But, you know, I got issues that need to be taken care of. So I'm starting to put myself out there a little bit more, and I apologize for it. Anyway, hi, Chuck. This is from Ron. Hi, Chuck. One of my patrons suggested you as a guest for my show. Get your news on with Ron. It's all one word, apparently. I do a live stream on YouTube podcast and have guests Monday through Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Central, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. Are you available this coming Tuesday? Thanks, Ron Placone, I guess. I am available, and we're still trying to work out the logistics because we didn't have the AV hookup that Ron suggested. If I am on that show, we'll announce it on social media. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. Finally, Emily has a serious and sobering question for me. I was wondering if you had given any serious thought to what might happen to This Is Hell when you're no longer willing or able, suddenly or otherwise, to continue hosting it each week. I don't think this is a death threat. It's the only radio show podcast of its kind, and I sometimes worry about its future in that sense. I know the impending collapse of our society from climate change may make this question moot, but I'm putting that aside for this question. Thanks for all you do. I'm very happy to be able to contribute to the show as a patron, and I'll continue trying to get others to swap pledges over from the very, very deep pockets of the wealthy folks over at Chapo. Yes, everyone, if you give to Chapo, Give to This Is Hell. There's good reason. Isn't it weird that an old producer of ours is part of the Chapo team? Always makes me wonder where they got that idea of doing a serious but not so serious anti-capitalist talk show anyway. This is Hell every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. right here on WNUR 89.3 FM. Streaming live at thisishell.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, and check us out on Instagram, This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's happening on next week's show? Uh, I don't know yet. Oh, uh, but uh, if you have been sending us listener suggestions, uh, I, I maybe four or five people have been suggested to us. It hasn't been able to work out for this month, but I've been in touch with them about next month or the next coming months. Uh, so keep them coming, and we're still working on it. Yeah, and you know, ideally, we would... All the show would only be listener suggested guests. Well, maybe not ideally. I don't know, man. I think it would be really. I think it would be really intense. It's been very difficult this this month. I yeah, tell it's you. been a hard month booking, but uh, we've not, had great... not just booking, but doing the research on topics that I, you know, aren't topics that I would have sought out myself. Yeah, uh, we've had great guests. So this has been a really great month. So everyone, keep suggestions coming all the time. Uh, we're working on booking people still. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. Oh, we have a word of the week. Last week, while doing uh, research for one of our guests, and now I can't... Oh, Gerald Horn. While doing research for Gerald Horn, I came across... And by the way, this week's uh, interview we did with Marquise Bay, I had to have a dictionary next to me, or at least the dictionary page, open up on my browser the whole time because Slavific, Salvific, I mean, Salvific, Salvific. Seriously, Salvific? It means to be salvation oriented i guess but anyway the word of the week this week a word i came across in reading a guest's work that i did not know brute brute b-r-u-i-t 
Past tense, brooded. Past participle, brooded. It's a verb. To spread a report or rumor widely. Example given. I didn't want to have our relationship brooded about the office. Word of the week this week, brooded. By the way, the prizes that we will be giving out uh, at the This Is Hell 4th Annual 20th Anniversary Party Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, Simon Perani book, gift certificates to Hopleaf, Big Jones, subscription to Jacobin, passes to seeing me on the uh, Michael Brooks show, uh, Dave Buchan calendar, plenty of This Is Hell merchandise, including one-of-a-kind swag, and plenty more. So make sure you check all of that out. Anything else I have to do over here? Done with that? Done with that? All right, I'm getting out of here. Uh, Alex, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. All right. I want to thank the listeners who are on this week's sh- or the guests who are on this week's show. Marquise Bay, author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical P- Black Feminism. We want to thank listener Alex for suggesting that guest. Also, thanks to political science and environmental studies scholar Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands. Thanks to Brian for suggesting that guest. You will be receiving our secret mystery prize for suggesting a guest that we actually get on air. Labor history. Historian Raquel Varela is author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. You can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com in just a little bit. We want to thank listener Chris for coming up with that guest suggestion. And finally, journalist Brian Hugh. I want to thank him for his coverage on what's happening in Hong Kong. Thanks to listener by the name of Matt on Twitter at Asian Art Tours for suggesting, Brian, you also will be getting one of those free special mystery secret prizes, whatever. Oh, and the hangover cure this week was break your plumbing in your bathtub shower. So hot water comes out of the shower head, cold water comes out of the bathtub spigot, and then lay in the bathtub with the cold water hitting your head and the hot water hitting your stomach. I know it's insane, but it's what I've been doing to cure my hangover cure. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I think Jonah's been over there all day, too, and I just noticed. It's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you here on This Is Hell this week, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning dot in the middle of your forehead, and going to next week's party on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon tells oh, yeah. me a profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell right. And now a little bonus that I wanted to give everybody. Today is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And uh, everybody's celebrating it. And nobody's celebrating it the way that everybody should be celebrating it. When I was a teenager, uh, somebody introduced me to an amazing recording artist. It was the beginning of my more radical thinking in my life. And so without further ado, this is the most important song about the moon landing. And uh, it was inspired... It was inspired by some whiteies on the moon. So I want to give credit where credit is due. All right. That's it.
A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's up in me, because Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And as if all that crap wasn't enough, a rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. Was all that money I made last year for Whitey on the moon? How come I ain't got no money here? Mmm, Whitey's on the moon. You know, I just about had my fill of Whitey on the moon. I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special. Whitey. To Whitey on the moon. Thank you.